BBC Five Live. Wassail, wassail, wassail. That's very good. It's a seasonal. No, I know, I know, I know. It's good. I think you've used it before. But oh, I've absolutely used it before. <laughs> but it's when the... have we ever tried anything just once? There are very few times of year that you can use the wassailing uh, gag. And, and for the benefit of those who don't, what would a wassail, what would wassailing be? If you go wassailing, it's it's an old tradition where mm-hmm. you you go out uh, and wassail, and you wassail, and you sing, <laughs> and you get you get nice spicy uh, Christmas time drinks. Yes, as a result of it, exactly. It's basically going round and making a noise outside people's houses, getting drinks for for menaces. until they give you. That's right. Until they give you alcohol to go away. Give us a drink for no reason. Um, no, no. Give us a drink, or we'll carry on singing. It's a bit. Yeah, I guess. I guess it is. Ken, a bit Ken like... Russell used to love a good wassail. Really? Yeah, he did. He would. It was often as Christmas approached. He would say, "You know, we must go wassailing." We never did. Somehow, the idea of it was always better than maybe the, actual... the idea of it is. That, maybe that's the best way it should stay. But no, but I don't know. If you were, if it was coming up to Christmas and you heard a wassailing going on outside your house and you opened the door and it was Ken Russell, you'd be pretty. Why do, we could offer a wassailing service, you and me. We could go. You know, if for anyone who's been listening, like a long-term listener, a witter wassailing. Yeah, maybe we could just. Uh, appear outside people's houses. We sail attainment and, and sing. Can't what do you think? I, I'm up for it. Will, it, will we rake, rake in huge amounts of cash? Well, it depends. It might pay us to go away. It depends if you bring your harmonica or not. Oh, I see. That's where we've gone to already. Is it? If you hear uh, a mouth organ happening, mouth organ <laughs> outside your house for no apparent reason. Maybe from beside the bins, then it'll probably be us. Where did you get the bins thing know, from? Where did that? No, seriously, where did that start? The round the back of your bins. What was? What is it from? I don't know. What was that really spooky film that we talked about for a long time? Uh, it was to do with that. That one. It was a really. It was to do with somebody hiding behind your bins. I think so. It was like a pinky and perky voice for no reason. I don't know why it was. It was Sparky's magic piano we were talking Maybe. about, that, but there's no bins involved in that. Anyway, Luke, who's in Perth, yes, Australia version. There's Simon. This is addressed to me specifically. Okay. There's 86 Shall minutes. I step out. There's 86 minutes left in 2017. You only have two choices: A, watch the Emoji Movie in its entirety, or B, listen to Mark playing harmonica until 2018. <laughs> Which do you choose? Tinkety-tonk from about as far away from London as you can get. Would you, how, what is the furthest you can get from where we are? It must be about well, Perth. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's about that. Well, space, obviously. The answer, Luke, I would say is I would rather hear Mark play harmonica. Shall I, shall I whip nope. it out? Uh, Matt Saw, patrol leader, second Atterbury Scouts. I'd like to report a heretofore undocumented medical condition which may be of concern to other listeners. Here we go. Last week, in a moment of very poor judgment, Simon stepped out of the studio and left Mark alone to, quotes, play <laughs> play with Ray Conniff Jr. Play along with, I think. <laughs> oh, yes, that's right, yeah. <laughs> I was in the middle of my breakfast, says Matt. I've played along with many people. Several wayward notes into his accompaniment, I let out a convulsive laugh so sudden that owing to me also having a mouthful of cornflakes resulted in an instant and not entirely welcome redecoration <laughs> of my kitchen counter and wall and floor. Nice pebble dash effect. Is this perchance the first ever reported case of crisp, cacophony-related induced cereal projection? And to whom should I send the cleaning bill? Mark. 
is the answer to that, Matt. Why? You're the person that stepped away from the controls. I think you are the one who were playing with Ray Conniff Jr. Yeah, but I was only... But you're in, I haven't got a, a you know the, the thing that stops the microphones. That's you. You're the person who's in control. You're the presenter. I'm just the... Contributor. Contributor. John Polensky, who's in Cologne, or Köln, as we should say. Pardon? Köln. K-O-umlaut. L-N is how you would say it. Oh, but, but Cologne is different. No, Cologne and Cologne is the same place. No, but there is a place called Cologne, C-O-L-O-G-N, which is a That's different what I'm place talking actually about. called Cologne. Pardon? John Polensky is in Cologne, Co- also known as Koln. Okay, so, there, and there, so there's two spellings of the same name. Yes. Beg your pardon? As you were. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, that's it. Anyway. Okay, I didn't know. I thought so, maybe look, there was... Look, there's, there's his email, see, from Cologne slash Koln. Okay, all I can see is harmonica, a defence, so you carry on wherever he is. Somewhat belatedly, may I offer a perfectly valid explanation for why Mark's harmonica rendition sounded so off last week. Yes, it was catastrophic, and yes, the cats were caterwauling uncontrollably less than a minute in. Now, I've read this a couple of times, and I don't quite follow it. Okay, go on. But the recording of La Bamba used is in C major. However, it was played in a very sharp C major key, several hertz higher than you would normally expect. This gentleman has perfect In fact, it was so high it almost sounded like it was in D flat major. In other words, a totally different key. Very good. Mark's humble harmonica... Is in C. ..however, was tuned to a standard C major, so it sounded completely out of tune against the track, which, as I said, was so out that it was almost in a different key, almost but not quite, which of course rendered it even more excruciatingly painful nonetheless. Sorry to rub it in. Yes. The point is, though, that there was nothing Mark could have done about it, I add at this point, <laughs> apart from not doing stop it at all. Stop. The solution would actually be to lower the pitch of the La Bamba track until it fitted it so it with me. Mark's exactly, exactly. With digital tweakery nowadays, that's a perfectly simple thing to do. I'm not suggesting for one moment, mind, that you do that before this coming Friday and let Mark have another go. And there's a note from the editor there which says, no, he's not. No. Um, David Clark, um, read your uh, podcast from Friday the 1st of December. Now we know who put the harm into harmonica. <laughs> that's very good. I get a T-shirt made with that. I, can I say something about pitch? Or is, is there more harmonica stuff? No. Well, not for the, uh, not for the um, moment. Everything's fine. At All right. Very quickly. Um, I had a very interesting... I was with, um, with Dave Norris the other day. and um, Our, our well-known projectionist. Well-known projectionist. And, get, get, um, uh, and a friend of Dave's who's a, a musician, a professional musician, works on um, film uh, scores. And uh, I had a conversation about the fact that, you know that video moves at a different speed to film. You know, it's 24 and 25 frames. So film is 24 frames a second. You know that, that okay. You know that film is basically yeah, yeah. a series of, of static images put together to create the illusion of motion. Okay, I've heard that before. Yeah. So film moves at 24, 24 frames a second. Video refreshes. Well, it's actually fifty, but it's fifty divided by two because it's yes. top and bottom, so it's twenty-five. Uh-huh. So when you play a video, it's one twenty-fifth-ish shorter than a, than a film, and this has often been a problem for. Um, for the BBFC, because they'll classify a film, they'll say it's 103 minutes long, then it will come out on video and it'll be 101 minutes long. And people say, well, you've cut two minutes out of the film. They go, no, we haven't. We, it's the, the, the thing is playing faster, OK? This has been a long... Actually, the wrong speed. Yeah, exactly. Videos, PAL videos play at the wrong speed. One of the weird things about that is that that actually affects the soundtrack. And I had been told a story by Mike Figgis, who directed Leaving Las Vegas many years ago, that Sting, you know Sting? I know Sting. Right. Do you actually know Sting? Well, we've met a number of times. He sent me a shirt in the post once. You want to elaborate on that or just Sting sent me a shirt? I did a, I did a phone interview with him for a record of the week and on the cover of the single he was wearing a spectacular 
yellow shirt and I praised his shirt. So he sent it to you. So the next thing, about a week later, this shirt arrives in the post. Actually, it's not the shirt, but it's with a note from Sting saying, I couldn't find that shirt, but I thought I'd send you this one. And I think he probably sent it to me because it wasn't quite as nice as the one that I was complimenting. But it was one of those spectacular shirts that you only ever wear if you're a rock star <laughs> and everyone else looks like a pillock, basically. So I don't know if that's going to be swap- OK. I once swapped shirts with Jonathan Richmond. After I'd played a gig with Jonathan Richmond, stop me if I'd mentioned that before. I think you have. I have. Before, and at yeah. the end of the gig, I I had a shirt and he had a shirt, and I and I said, "Oh, let's swap shirts." And he went, "Yeah, okay, fine." So we did. But he's quite buff, you know. He's got quite big muscles. Has he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I was quite back then. I was quite skinny, and it was a really? long time. It was a long time ago. And he put the shirt on that I gave him, and I put the shirt on that he gave me. I still have the shirt that he gave me. And then we went to a to a well, we, I suppose it would have been five a, and dime. a disco, five and nine. We went to a disco and he danced and he danced so heavily that the shirt that I had given him literally fell apart on his on his muscular. On body. the way there, were you tempted to drive past the stop and shop? I was, but I was better, I liked that better than walking past the stop and shop because yeah. I had the radio on. Excellent. Very good. Anyway, get back to the original thing. Oh, have so, you finished that story? No, no, no. The, no, the punchline of it is oh. when Leaving Las Vegas came out on video, apparently Sting couldn't watch it on video because the, the 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 difference in pitch of the songs that he had done for the film was such that it was it sounded completely wrong. I can understand that. I, well, I said to this musician, can it actually make that much difference? I mean, it's it's the, 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 when you watch it on, it doesn't look like the film's moving fast. He said, you'd be surprised if you have anything near perfect pitch. A, a, a very fractional difference can make a you know can really really put you off. And he said it's 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 more than a fractional difference. So yeah, everything that you hear on videos moving at the wrong speed is actually slightly too fast. And if you if you are somebody who's a proper musician who can tell what a middle C should sound like, it'll put everything. Up, which is obviously why my Labamba harmonica sounded that's, wrong. That, that's uh, it's all Sting's fault. Um, <laughs> that's right. I don't. An email, yes, that's fine. It's all Sting's fault. An email from the splendidly named Florian Gross, who's in Hamburg. That's Hamburg, just the one spelling of Hamburg. Yeah. Uh, I'm writing from the ICE train, I-C-E, capital letters, uh, from Berlin to Hamburg after receiving angry stares from the elder lady in the, f- in the row in front of me and a confused check on the quality of his headphones by the man in the other side of the aisle. <laughs> what I shamefully just found out is that my headphone jack must have moved slightly so that my phone turned on the speaker but still played your podcast on my earplug. Please tell me it did this at exactly the moment I was playing the harmonica. So it took me a while, about 20 seconds, and two angry stares to notice. Unfortunately, this happened just in the very 20 seconds where Mark tried to bring the dead back to life with his horrible harmonica interlude. I say it was much longer than 20 seconds. I will now duck deep into my seat and hope no more podcast incidents happen. And hello to Pedro and Deirdre, who introduced me to your podcast while in a minibus in the middle of nowhere, close to the Cambodian and Vietnamese border. He's well-travelled, is Florian Gross. He is. And he's with his headphone jack, he's playing us to previously unexplored audiences. So, anyway, I think that concludes the harmonica correspondence. Um, So I was on a train the other day, and somebody got on and sat behind me... And said, please, please don't... Don't play the harmonica. No. They put put their their phone that they downloaded some programme onto... And they put their headphone, you know, in, yeah. but obviously hadn't put it in. And they started playing it. And it was effety jefferting. I mean, it was literally, it came in. in the, it was like Joe Pesci. Oh, really? And yes, and I had to turn around and go, I'm, t- I'm terribly sorry. I don't think your headphone's in. And then the gentleman, <gasps> oh, terribly sorry. <laughs> um, I've had a really, really good idea, by the way. Okay. 
Uh, on, uh, what, you're frowning. What are you well, no, sorry, the clock suddenly started doing some alarm thing. A yellow thing went round it. And a, well, and that, a... mean, that just means evacuate the building. Don't worry. Okay. So it's fine. But we, but not us, we have to stay. We stay. Yeah. Um, on, uh, on my radio. Does it? What? It really means we're too loud. Yeah. What, the, that... the, the, the square that came on. Would you mind? What, we, what we are talking too loud. This is, we're getting directions now from Nicola. Sorry, are you, I'm not, I'm not being funny. Is that actually that we're too, ah, no, it's not coming on. No, it's not that. This is a very entertaining section. No, but it's not. He's making it up. You are making it up because I just shouted and it didn't come on. All right. Back to my original (laughs) top idea. Go on. On my Radio 2 show, as a Christmas treat, we invite Rick Wakeman to come in. Yes, and yes, play yes. Christmas song. Yes. Right, which I've done. Yes. In fact, it started on Five Live and then carried on radio. Yes. The, the equivalent would be people send in their Christmas requests. Yes. For you to play on the harmonica. <laughs> and and then you, so you then choose them you, and it turns into a medley. Actually, a medley. This is not a good idea. I just realised. Ben, Tom, well, here's a better way. We get in Rick Wakeman and get him to play a medley of hits on my harmonica. That would be different, and I bet he could do it. Too. Actually, he probably could. Infuriatingly, he probably could. He could do the myths and legends of King Arthur and the Round Table <laughs> on the harmonica, he, whilst say, whilst eating a curry and falling asleep and ice skating with a troop of. Uh, he used to do that. He used to eat a curry in the, during gigs. Um, that's in his uh, in his memoir. Yeah. Well, it's also in his head because he said it to me. Ben Tawney from Leamington Spa, but currently in Jakarta Airport. I'm at the tail end of a month. Sorry, should we do the Jakarta? Go on. Jakarta? No, I come here often. No. Oh, never mind. What, what's it? What, no, it's not Jakarta. It's Jakarta. No, she went on the train, isn't it? It's, well, you do both lines of the joke then. Right, my you know my wife's gone to blah, blah, blah. Jakarta. No, she went on the train, but then it's like you know Jamaica. No, she went over. Oh, never mind. I'm at the tail end of a month traveling around Indonesia, featuring assorted volcanic eruptions. Before beginning my training as a pilot in the new year, during my travels, I've spent a not inconsiderable amount of time on buses, trains, and in airports, listening to your bad selves. We should be bad elves, actually, obviously for this week. And well done. To pass the time, and of course, met a large number of wonderful and interesting people. It was whilst having lunch with one of these temporary travel partners that I performed what one might refer to as a Jason Isaacs. Okay, he's go on. This is performing a Jason, yeah, which means hijacking another person's fruit-based device, which still isn't funny, and subscribing them to the Wittertainment podcast, downloading the episode with James and Dave Franco after a long discussion about Tommy Tommy Wiseau, the disaster artist, and midnight screenings of The Room. I did warn her that she might struggle to work out what on earth was going on initially, but if you could give a big was up and a wassail then to Emily Greenspan. Now you, Mark, Emily Greenspan. Emily Greenspan. One of the newest members of the church, it might help convince her to persevere with your witterings and adopt the code of conduct in all future cinema visits. Except when throwing spoons at the room or shouting out like Mark during the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So, thank you, Ben. And shout hello out to like Emily Mark. Lots of people shout out during the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I didn't start that. It was a thing. It was a thing before I started. Here's another Wittervision. This is definitely a trend. Go on. Who is it? Danny O'Reilly. And whom has Danny O'Reilly, O'Reilly been visited? Brother of Blimey O'Reilly. <laughs> Dear Hark and Herald. I'd just like to say, Danny, that Simon made that joke, not me. I've never felt compelled to get in touch until today. Just 30 minutes ago, I was wandering the streets of Southwark on my lunch break, tucking into my very average £3 supermarket meal deal and listening <laughs> to the podcast. I'm seldom up to date, currently about a month behind. 
hearing about films that have probably left the big screen and airborne encounters with Margot Robbie and various with Donald Gleeson from listeners while enjoying themselves with the stars themselves. What an extraordinary thing. I don't frequent celeb hangouts and always turn right when boarding a plane, so never thought this phenomenon would happen to me. My best celeb spot to date was Olympic medal winning diver Tom Daly at the gym. Lovely chap, by the way. Well, ham and cheese sandwich in one hand, salt and vinegar crisps in the other. I spot Mr Toby Jones crossing my path whilst listening to the very interview which Simon did about his film Kaleidoscope. Excellent. What happened next? What? was not my finest hour. Oh. Instead of doing the decent thing and looking at the ground, which is what everyone else does, <laughs> and leaving Mr Jones to his day, I said, Toby! Excuse me, Mr Jones, sorry to bother you, but I'm listening to you on a podcast right now. You know, that Simon and Mayo one, <laughs> whilst flashing in my phone for some sort of proof. Yes, I actually said Simon oh, and, and Mayo. Mayo. Sorry, Mark, and sorry, everyone. <laughs> it's fine. I'm I was too caught up in my own idiocy to hear Mr Jones's polite response. Uh, and that was that. Encounter over. Profuse apologies for not knowing the name of the show under pressure and being such a poor ambassador. I assume that's me off the cruise and I'll be on the Code of Conduct Breakers camping trip. Well, it will, have, will definitely have massively changed Toby's view of how the show works because he now, you know, oh, yes, exactly. That Kermode is just a, an appendage. So despite the fact that I've known him for longer than you have. You might think you're just called Mayo Kermode now. Mayo Kermode, yeah. Simon and Mayo. Simon. Do you think that it could be re? What do you think of that as rebranding? What Mayo Kermo? No, Simon and Mayo. What do you think? The Simon and Mayo film show. I think good luck with that, matey boy. Oh, yeah, it wouldn't have many reviews in it. Would it? <laughs> just have a lot of listeners' emails. Um, so that would be interesting. See if you could do a whole show without ever mentioning a film and just reading out listeners' emails about bumping into somebody whilst on a train. Could probably fill many hours, yeah, and you know it. Uh, right, well, we're going to uh, start the real show in just a moment. Are we? Well, like, well it's the kind of it's it's the bit in the middle before we come back for the for the next secret bit, for which, the next wibbly wobbly bit. Yeah, for the next wibbly wobbly bit. But you've been very good so far. Thank you, but I haven't done very much so far, other than had a. Start, he's gone. Nicola's gone. I don't think I've started with it. Okay, I just guarantee you that's not what it's not to do with being too loud. It's not because if I shout, it doesn't work. But no, you can say, yes, it is. Mark, this is a one-sided conversation which isn't making any sense. So we're going to stop. To everybody listening, I've been told that the thing comes on when we're too loud in the studio. What thing? Okay, look look there, that screen, okay? Suddenly that screen, which has got a clock on it, and it's the thing that tells us when we were on air and we're not on air. We should stop. A big yellow box came round it and a big yellow triangle came on it. Here's the deal. If the engineers say that's what it means, that's what it means. And I would advise you to just say... I never knew that. Thank you for telling me. I never knew that. Thank you for telling me. And we proceed. Still not true. Five minutes past two. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the programme. We're here until four o'clock with two hours uninterrupted by uh, World Cup or anything else. Well, I think you're really tempting fate to say that. To be perfectly honest, obviously on Five Live, you never quite know whether you're going to be interrupted. And obviously, if anything important happens, we'll interrupt ourselves. Yes. Um, To bring you all the the latest. You're the latest interruption. We are the latest thing, basically, uh, at the moment. And we're going to do all the movie reviews. And then Steve Coogan will be in live after 2.30. And if you want to get involved or ask Steve a question, uh, the email is mayo at bbc.co.uk. An intriguing conundrum, which I don't think we've been asked to, to uh, actually sit on and rule over uh, before, from Jane Murison, who's in Manchester. Hello, Jane. As a keen knitter and cinema goer... OK, we, uh, have, we have done knitting in cinemas. Have we? OK, well, I've just forgotten about it. Let's do it again, then. And now another chance to discuss knitting in cinemas. cinemas. I recently discovered I can combine my hobbies by knitting in the cinema. In the dark, no head torches, I am a ninja. 
I came home from watching Moto as... Actually, this is uh, Moto on the Orient Express. And Jane says, as custom dictates, as nobody is calling it. But I can tell you for a fact, loads of people are calling it that, including people who work on the film. And in my review to My Good Doctor, Him Indoors, snowy, slightly unbelievable leaps in deduction, excellent hairy face furniture, good family fun, I mentioned that I'd also made progress on my socks, about two inches a foot with the knitting. The husband said, hang on, is knitting code compliant? Uh-huh. So here I am asking if it is. Some important information before you make a ruling. Yes. It is silent. Needle clacking isn't really a thing. The yarn is silent. The project bag is cloth. It is the non-edible equivalent of a soft roll. Second point, I knit small objects like socks with circular, therefore shorter needles, so I'm unlikely to interfere with my neighbours uh, with my elbows or needle poking. Even so, I don't bring my project out in a busy screening. I'm slightly nervous about this because it's very nice feeling smug about my nascent ninja knitting skills. Either way, a big hello from... You to my fellow Wittertainee husband, Mike, and the Witter trainees, Ivy and May, would be most appreciated. Love the show, Steve. Well, I don't know what we said before. It, what, it, it came down exactly to needle clacking. It was to do with whether or not... Because, I mean, if you've... You, you know that it, people do knit and... The, yeah. You, and to get that. And that was just, uh, decided that that would be uh, very annoying. However, we have... In the code, it does say no hobbies. And I have a feeling that if I was sitting next to somebody, somebody knitting, you'd knitting, find it distracting. I would, I would be typical yeah. after a while. Go, could you just stop? Knitting? Yeah, no, I tend to agree. I mean, the interesting thing with that is that the thing about she's, it was, a, it was an almost empty cinema. Did I in, invent that bit? Of well, she, yeah, she says she doesn't do it if it's in a busy screen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I would say you shouldn't do it if there's anyone. In it's the one of those room. weird things that even if you couldn't hear it it would be oddly distracting. Because if we allow this, people will say, OK, well, if I do it quietly, can I assemble my air, my Airfix Spitfire kit? <laughs> can, I, can I put together my HMS Victory? Yeah. I'll be very quiet with the gluing. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think if you're... I mean, I think a, a, a strict ruling has to be no, you're right, because I think it does come under hobbies. I think if you're, you know, out of the way of everybody and you're not catching somebody's eye, but you're, you're quite right. If I was sitting there watching... Poirot twiddling with his moustache, attempting to figure out who done it, while somebody was knit well, one pearl was, was knitting her. I think why? It, but why would you? Why would you want to knit in a film anyway? Well, I think it's probably something that's a, a kind of um, nervous thing. No, no, not nervous. But I think it's something that's uh, you know, it's it, it, it's a relaxing. Was in the movie? You know, I I, I understand that, but uh, you know, I mean, you've seen people sitting with fidget spinners, haven't you? I mean, it's the same thing, isn't it? Is it? Well. Yeah, except if fidget spinners are really annoying and you don't have a nice pair of socks at the end of so, them. So, Jane, I'm a f- I, 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 think, I, mean, I think that we're edging towards a situation no. through negotiation uh, here, and obviously things might change at the last yeah. minute. I think the ruling is no. Unless but, you're on your own. Yeah, exactly. That's the way that is. I'm re- and I'm really sorry about that because, you, because it, that is making us sound very strongly authoritarian, ex- except for the fact that we don't ha- actually have any power. So it doesn't matter. Yet. yet. Oh, I see, yet. Um now, an important and significant contribution right. uh, from Dr. Bob Nicholson. OK. Dear man who invented Christmas and man who wasn't there, please allow me to introduce myself. By day... Is he a man of wealth and taste? No, wrong one. By day, I work as a historian of Victorian popular culture at Edge Hill University. OK. By night, I'm a keen cinema-goer. I thought he was going to say, by night, I'm Batman. And long-term listener. These worlds recently collided when I watched the trailer for The Man Who Invented Christmas. Mm-hmm. It looked like a bit of Dickensian nonsense, a fun bit of Dickensian nonsense, but I was struck by a problem with one of its period details. 
Dan Stevens is pictured holding a newspaper with an enormous headline reading Charles Dickens. However, as your learned listeners will know, the front pages of Victorian newspapers were actually filled with tiny adverts. Most daily papers didn't start using headlines or front page news until well into the 20th century. The Times, for instance, still had nothing but adverts on its front page in the 1960s. I'm normally quite an easygoing chap and I've never been remotely bothered by inaccuracies in period drama before. My favourite Dickens adaptation is still Muppet Christmas Carol, which isn't exactly a documentary, says Bob in the understatement of the week. But I specialise in media history and this touched a nerve. Films often get newspapers totally wrong, but I expected this one to do better. After all, Dickens was a journalist, a newspaper editor himself. In a moment of frustration, I sent out a few tweets to set the record straight. For reasons I don't understand, my complaint went viral. It was trending on Twitter alongside news of the royal engagement and inexplicably ended up as the main story on page three of Saturday's Times. And there it is. Wow! The headline, Historian Tez Strip Off Dickens Biopic Makers for Size of Newspaper Headlines. And there is a picture of Dan Stevens with the with very good newspaper. I know this is a ridiculously petty thing to complain about, says Dr Bob Nicholson, but I seem to have accidentally taken a very public stand on it. All of which makes me wonder, and here we get to it. Go on. What's the smallest cinematic hill that you're willing to die on? The, the, <laughs> the tiniest thing at which you're prepared to say, I'm sorry, enough is enough. I feel a bit ridiculous about this, and so it would be reassuring to hear from wittertainees who have a more ridiculous reason for getting annoyed at a film. There must You must have loads, Mark. You know, do, actually, there's you know. nothing substantial wrong with it, but that tiny little, tiny little detail gets has annoyed you. Perhaps we could all meet for a session of collective tutting in Nitpicker's Nave. Uh, well, OK, so this is the thing. If there is something that's really tiny and insignificant, the movie is good, the performances are good, the soundtrack is wonderful, it's everything is great. It's going to bother you. But that little thing that they got wrong, if that's bugged you, uh, get in touch, 85058 mayo at uk. And Bob finishes by saying, to prove I'm not completely humourless, here are some genuine Victorian jokes about Charles Dickens. OK, go on. OK? Yes. I've got a couple. I'm going to do two of them because I don't even get the third one. So this is a Victorian joke. Yeah. So put yourself in a Victorian frame of mind, okay. Mark. Okay. I'm, okay. I'm, going, I'm going sideburns. And, and Why is it reasonable that Dickens' later plots should be complicated? I don't know. Why is it reasonable that Dickens' later plots should be complicated? Because one of his earlier works was all of a twist. Uh, okay. Is that is that a genuine joke? Genuine joke from Dr. Bob Nicholson, take this from <laughs> Victorian times. Okay. One more. Uh, why was Dickens a great... Oh, I was going to look this up so I'd sound learned. Anyway, why was Dickens a greater writer than Shakespeare? I don't know. Why was Dickens a greater writer than Shakespeare? Shakespeare wrote well, but Dickens wrote weller. OK. Can I... In 1870, they were wetting they were, themselves. They were. One. I just say, you mentioned Muppet Christmas Carol... And you said that thing about little things that, that annoy you about film. I made a terrible mistake the other day. I was talking about, I was writing something about Muppet Christmas Carol, uh, which I really like. And I've, I've got the soundtrack of Muppet Christmas Carol, which I listened to over and over and over again. And I was picking favourite songs from it. And I picked Room in Your Heart. And then I mentioned it in relation to the movie. And I'm a dimwit because it's not actually in the film. It's on the soundtrack album. And Nicholas Guyatt, who is a very learned person at, uh, at Cambridge, I think, uh, tweeted me to say that's it's not even not only is it not the highlight of the film, it's not even in the film. He was completely right, and I had one of those oh for heaven's sake because I love that film, but I love that soundtrack album. And my favourite song in the film 
isn't in the film. And obviously when Shakespeare wrote well, Dickens wrote well, obviously... I mean, Oh, so are you still gonna, on that? No, I was just going to say, okay, that's Sam Weller from the Pickwick Papers. See, that's... Uh, yeah, so somebody just looked that up for you on Google? No, no, I was obviously it just came Google. back to me. Pickwick yes, Papers. thank you, Robin, thanks. His first, his first novel, which I just remembered. Uh, anyway, we're going to do the box office top 13. It's quarter past two. The box office top 13, because the disaster asked this. Disaster. <laughs> disastrous email reader uh, is at number 13. And here's Lee Ash. Oh, no, well, you, you do your thing, and then I'll do my thing. Well, I really like it. I think, oh. it, I mean, I, well, you know I do. Um, uh, I think that it's it's really funny, but I think it works because, as with Tim Burton's Ed Wood, it, it manages to convince you, whether rightly or wrongly, that... It, Tommy Wiseau is more than just a terrible filmmaker. It has that sort of, you know, that nobility of failure thing going on. And I think James Franco's performance is really, really funny. And I have had so many people since that film came out, you know, going, oh, hi, Mark, or ha-ha, you know. It's a, so it's... Which, it's, if you've seen the film, if, if, it's if a you, funny thing. Yeah, and if you'd seen Room, you know, The Room, as opposed to Room, if you'd seen The Room, you might have done beforehand. But now it is now, it's impossible for me to do anything on Twitter or anybody without somebody writing, ha, 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 what a story, Mark. Uh, Lee Ashcroft, I'm a huge fan of The Room and The Disaster Artist is the funniest book I've ever read. So I honestly didn't expect the film adaptation to live up to the real-life insanity. Uh, indeed, there are elements of the film that have clearly been fictionalised for the cinema, which always irks me, even if I understand the need to sometimes do that. So if it hadn't been for James Franco's note-perfect performance as Tommy Wiseau, it, really is. it probably wouldn't have held up as well as it did for me. It's all the stronger for refusing to shy away from elements of Tommy's character that are genuinely monstrous, but still pass the six-love yeah. test within the first 15 minutes, and that's entirely down to James Franco's performance. You can tell this is a labour of love for him because the film oozes that love of a story and its characters from every inch of the screen. Um, Roslyn, this is Roslyn Wilkes, uh, says, Admittedly, I could have had a bit less of the build-up of, of Tommy and Greg trying to make it to L.A., and more of the ill-fated production of the movie. Some of the best scenes were when the uh, ensemble played off each other. Also, I felt the ending sequence in the movie theatre felt slightly far-fetched, although I can't confess to knowing the original reaction on the picture. Yet overall, um, the film had great heart, and Franco clearly put a huge amount of passion into the project. The final recreations of scenes from the room were pitch-perfect, and the fact... Uh, I was in the early screenings where everybody clearly loved the original film, really helped the atmosphere. And you do need to stay to the very, very, very end. So you can see the juxtaposition of the two. No, no, no. After, after that, way after that, stay to the very, very end. Why? Because there's a cameo at the very, very, very end, which was a scene that they shot for the film that they didn't put in, that they stuck at the very, very, very end. And it is it, it kind of makes sense that it's there because it's only there for the diehard fans, but it is worth staying for. And Adam in Leeds got to see Disaster Artist last week, loved the movie, but me and my partner have very conflicting opinions about Tommy. For me, I felt sorry for him and saw his bad side as a mental health issue. This got to the point at which I felt bad laughing at him. My partner, on the other hand, despised him and saw him uh, as an egomaniac. We both loved the movie, but had completely different feelings throughout. I mean, it's a point that we did raise with James Franco um, and his brother Dave when yeah. they were in likening it to Florence Foster Jenkins, that actually he's such a misfit that maybe there were some mental health issues, but the Francos weren't quite convinced by that. No, I mean, they weren't. I mean, I, and... Certainly, if you the, see the film, you'll understand. I think the point that Adam is making. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, I have to say, I felt the film was very sympathetic, and uh, you know, I I thought it was, and I thought it was really fun, and I, I really enjoyed it. And it's it is amazing when you look at the room, and then you look at the disaster artist. And go, well, that led led to that. So you know, I mean, the room the room is terrible. 
Well, of course it is. I mean, you notoriously know, terrible. Have you seen the room? Yes, I saw it yes. before. Before we did the yeah. before we did the interview. It's terrible. It is genuinely appalling. Uh, Ten is the man who invented Christmas, which. Jonathan Price was on the show uh, last week and when we weren't talking about the fact that he'd just been in the same room as Tony Blair, we did briefly touch upon the movie. I think it's it's something that's going to be a television stable from... Staple? Staple, staple pardon me. Uh, from, you know, now until st- the end... Stable staple. Uh, thank you very much. Now until the end of time. I think it's you know, it, fanciful and silly... Um, but there are moments in it that it works. Obviously, I couldn't get past the fact that the uh, the newspaper headlines were all wrong and being the, yes. the the great historian that I am, I found it impossible to enjoy Dan Stevens. I really did enjoy Jonathan Price as uh, Dickens' father. Though. I thought it was good fun. It's interesting, though, that if you just he just tweeted it afterwards and then suddenly someone in the press picked it up and it became a huge, it became yeah, a huge yeah. story. Yeah. Um, Claire Watson, after listening to uh, last week's show, just wanted to share with you... I mean, it's not like he's the president of America or anything, so... Enjoyable trip to the cinema I shared with my 14-year-old twins on Sunday and also draw to your attention quite a niche audience for the film The Man Who Invented Christmas thanks to the current GCSE syllabus they're currently studying A Christmas Carol Um, Dickens' creation of the novel uh, and whilst I doubt the film was entirely accurate in its portrayal of Charles Dickens' novel it did provide a good opportunity for them to gain a little more insight into some of the book's characters and also stock up on the quotes ambitious descriptive vocabulary so beloved by GCSE markers that the film was much more than that easily passed the six laugh test with all of us chuckling away at various points of the film as well as creating a slightly sentimental yet festive atmosphere as we were the only people in the 10.15 a.m. Sunday morning screening. It also meant the kids were allowed to do a little code breaking and quote along with key phrases from the book's text, thereby, at least in my mind, turning the cinema trip into a legitimate GCSE revision session as well. Thank you, Claire, for that. So if you're the only ones there, you can do that. Plus, you can knit if you're the only ones there. (laughs) That's the official ruling. Um, And an anonymous email... um, Simon and Mark, it was a sheer joy. I laughed more than six times. I welled up less than three times. I wish to give that jackanape Thackeray a mighty good punch on the nose. <laughs> the film was about uh, Christmas right to the very core. Not the schmaltzy, over-sentimental, saccharine-flavoured Christmas, but the idea that, generally speaking, just being a bit nicer to each other can't really be a bad thing. I'm not a Dickens connoisseur, so I'm sure there are plenty of deeper reflections and references that I not- uh, references that I did notice, although I did like the repeating notion that Charles always woke up to church bells. It also touched me on a more personal note. The thread about uh, a life being worth spreading if someone can bring joy to others resonated with me, largely because that does appear to be my primary role in communicating with our six-year-old daughter. Dad's eye, it seems, good only for tickles, being silly, playing Minecraft and paying for pizza. Otherwise, they're stupid. <laughs> so thank you for bringing this film to my attention. I look forward to watching it with Seth. I, I think that's a pretty old. good job description of being a dad, isn't it? That's not bad. Speaking of, speaking of Minecraft, speaking of Minecraft going to get to it in our next uh, email section but we'll get there in a moment with the number four movie right. however number nine is the star which you know if you want to see the uh, nativity story retold as an outtake from shrek replete with a donkey this is the film for you battle of the sexes at eight i really liked it i mean it's, it's clearly not you know taking the nation by storm it looks like it's dropped by 60 percent. but i liked it very much and i thought the documentary was terrific and i went into the into the, the feature film worrying that it would spoil the story and i didn't think it did i thought emma stone was great i thought steve carell was great i thought it had a really brilliant period detail thanks largely to the cinematography which was done on 35 and actually looked like it was a film made in that period a bad mom's christmas is it number yeah seven? i'm bad mom's great bad mom's christmas not so much 
uh, Thor Ragnarok still hanging in there at six. And I think we've, you know, University decided it's the funniest of all those films, which it, for which thumbs up to it. Murder on the Orient Express is at number five. Still can't understand how Kenneth Branagh's moustache actually works, but uh, I have bumped into many people now who have seen Murder on the Orient Express and feel the same way as I do, that it's a really good Christmas, sh- you know, variety show, Christmas movie of the kind that they just don't make anymore. So I, you know, I'm I'm pleased about that because I know that some critics were pretty sniffy about it. More fool them. Yes. So at number four, and this is where Minecraft. Okay, comes fine. In, uh, this is Wonder. Yes. At number four, yeah. and I particularly love the, there is a sequence in there which involves Minecraft yeah. in a kind of a reconciliation kind of way. It does. It's so lovely, think, isn't it? It's really lovely. That's your cue. No, oh, sorry, but I, was, I, I thought you were going to read the email then. But oh, I have got... Uh, no, it was, that's just my reflection. I, I like I like the film very much. Somebody wrote to me on Twitter and said that, that Jacob Tremblay is not pronounced Tremblay, that apparently it being... It, that he's pronounced Trueblay. OK, well, we'll... I could, could we have the top team check out whether that's true? Because I didn't. I have had literally no idea they're about that. At the moment. The, uh, they're busy listening to radio too. Uh, so I, I may well have been saying it. I mean, T-R-E-M-B-L-A-Y looked like Tremblay to me, but apparently I may be wrong, so I'll just wait for a ruling on that. I thought he was really terrific in the film. I think Julia Roberts is great as the mum. I, I haven't read the, you know, the, the, the source book, which is a, a kid's book, which is very, very yeah. popular. R.J. Palacio wrote that. Book. Yes, but I think that the film... But actually, just on that thing, yeah. it, it's, a, it's sort of a kid's book, but, but it's, it kind of yeah. isn't. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's a grown-up book. And I think that... I think it's a really, a really well-done adaptation. I think the script manages to get to the heart of what the story you know, is actually about and manages to... Because really it's a story about not fitting in and about your anxieties about not fitting in and the way in which the film f- f- fractures and looks at the, the, you know, looks at the story from several different uh, viewpoints I think is handled well by, by the screenplay. It's well written and I thought it was very well played and it worked for me. I mean, I, you know, I, I laughed and I cried. I mean, I think it's very funny, yeah. which it's meant to be, and I also found it very moving. And one of the guys, as I have pointed out to you, one of the guys responsible for... The screenplay is Jack Thorne, who wrote the Harry Potter play. So he's uh, a man of great renown. I'm just uh, in my ear. Um, I'm told Jacob Tremblay. Okay, fine. Well, if that's what they're saying, okay. then that's what they're saying. Oh, that's what he says on his own Twitter feed, Tremblay. Okay, fine. Uh, Nick says, uh, my good wife and I went for a last-minute dash to the cinema on Tuesday. After a quick look as to what was on, I narrowed down the choice between Battle of the Sexes and Wonder. As my wife has no interest in tennis, Wonder won the day. I hadn't seen any ads or read anything about the film, so I went in without any idea as to what it was about. We arrived just in time to see the trailers. I have to admit, feeling a bit emotional. Uh, when the trailer for their finest hour came on, but this was nothing compared to the roller coaster ride of wonder. From a surprisingly early point in the film, I had tears in my eyes, and to be honest, they stayed flowing for most of the film. Owen Wilson and Julie Roberts played their roles in a perfectly understated way, never overshadowing the brilliant performances by all the kids in the film. I feel a left feeling an emotionally shattered wreck of epic proportions. And Owen Wilson being being well-observed and funny when he needed to be and just restraining everything. Um, Shule says, I must have seen a different version of Wonder than Mark. Okay. The one I saw left me dry-eyed and I cry at the Christmas adverts, squirming in my seat with a cheesy dialogue. My 15-year-old daughter summed it up perfectly as, that was so American. Well, I mean, it is well, yes. set... In In America. I hadn't been tempted by the trailer, but Mark's review persuaded me to give the film a go. From the opening scene, I suspected we were in for a sentimental, slushy journey, but waited in hope for all the backstories. Alas, these were full of clichés and uninteresting. There was a surprising lack of drama, and all the characters were two-dimensional and, frankly, annoying. Jacob 
Tremblay was Tremblay. brilliant as Tremblay. expected, but it just wasn't enough to save the film. Okay, I'm, I, well, I disagree, but, you know, fair enough. Roderick Ball, by my reckoning, Wonder will be in the UK box office in time for this uh, Friday's show, correct? Should be, the number of fo- should be by the number of folk I've recommended this beautiful movie to since seeing it last weekend. Good. The tears started early doors, didn't stop, are both laughter and sadness. I, like you, Mark, reckon I'd lost my body weight in tears by the time the final credits rolled. Uh, and don't watch Wonder on a plane with Isles. <laughs> they might have to break out the life jackets. Yeah, yeah. Wonder tackles some important stuff in terms of life lessons and values, like being kind more important than being right, without getting sanctimonious or saccharine. Here, it's pitch perfect. Julia R and Owen W are very believable as mum and dad. They are. And in fact, Owen Wilson is very, very charming and funny. And there are times on screen that I don't find him to be those things. I absolutely loved this film, and so did Child 3 and Child 4, age 13 and 10. Good. Fortunately, they chose to sit a little bit away from me, uh, uh, the mum and dad. Good job. Crying mums, just about acceptable. But crying dads, totes embarrassing <laughs> and not cool at all, unlike Augie's old man. Uh, thank you, Roderick. So that is Wonder at number four, Justice League. Still there at number three. Rubbish. Um, Daddy's Home 2 at two. Let's be honest, it is rubbish. Um, who's this? Hannah Marshall in Newcastle upon Tyne. Um, always happy to listen to other people's reviews and not submit my own, but I just felt I needed to vent to like-minded individuals about how astonishingly bad Daddy's Home 2 was. <laughs> I wanted to see okay. Wonder at the Odeon Silverlink in Newcastle, but we were delayed getting there and it meant we had to see Daddy's Home 2 instead. It's... Only the fact I have a, it's only because I have a limitless subscription and didn't physically hand any money over that kept me from yeah. feeling utterly fleeced. What I hated most was Mel Gibson's character, who felt like a relic from the 70s who had no place in a Christmas movie. Made in 2017, the uncomfortable persuasions to a young boy to slap a young girl's bottom as if claiming her as, if, uh, as his own made me actually cringe. I found myself either shrinking into my seat with embarrassment at the out-of-touch dialogue or sighing and rolling my eyes at the laughless set pieces. I'd listened to your podcast on the way to the cinema, where I think another listener had described Daddy's Home 2 as a tyre fire, and I think that about sums it up. Uh, so, the box office number one, as we suggested it might be, Paddington 2. I mean, I was delighted about this, because the conversation that we had last week, Daddy's Home went, Daddy's Home 2 went to number one, and I said, well, that's just because it's the opening weekend bump, and you know that's all it is, it's not going to be there next week. And you said... Do you think there's a chance that Paddington 2 will go back to number one? Which isn't something that happens that often. Um, t- things tend to go up and then down, but brilliantly in the case but of... And also, because... as the Christmas season kicks in, people are going, oh, we'll, do see, we'll see that with Grandma. Yeah, but also the fact that Paddington 2 is really good and, you know, has held in there really solidly. And how many weeks is it out now? I've been out four weeks and it's, and it's you know, back at the number one spot where it deserves, to be honest, yeah. where it deserves to sit all the way through Christmas because I've had... I've, I was talking to somebody just the other day who said, you know, I feel kind of slightly awkward about this, but Paddington 2, isn't it great? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone I think there'll be a number of people who would have thought, I suppose I did, that Paddington 1, as no one called it, <laughs> was was so perfect that why why it can't possibly be as good. So I've seen one Paddington film, I don't really need to see another one. Yeah. Then as the word of mouth spread, people were, oh, right, it's as good as the first it's, one. It's the Toy Story 2 factor, isn't yeah. it? It's the, it, you're only going to be disappointed and then you're shocked when you're not. Um, Oliver Udell. Okay. Simon and Mark, my name is Oliver. I am now 13. I'm not sure if you remember me. I emailed him when I was 10. My review was on Hold Paddington. Hold on, see if I can remember an email from three years ago. Probably not. No. Anyway, my review was on Paddington. I've recently gone to see Paddington 2. Oh, hang on. Was the, 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 the first review was about Paddington. The yeah. first... Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, 
I actually might remember that. Go on. It was a great film. As I said about the first Paddington movie, it was funny, touching and also great. Yes, I do remember. If you read this I out, do remember. can you say hi to my mum and dad? Funny, touching and also great. I do remember. Amelia from Exeter. On a chilly afternoon a few days ago, my good friend Debbie and I went to see Paddington 2 at the lovely picture house in Exeter. Having both endured a fairly rubbish couple of years, we were hoping for a repeat of the warmth and goodness of the first film. A film not just about the adventures of a bear in London, but also about openness, tolerance and kindness, things that can sometimes seem to be sadly lacking in today's world. Well, we weren't disappointed. Paddington 2 is a delight. We smiled and chuckled throughout and suffered a simultaneous fit of uncontrollable giggles at Hugh Grant's brilliant description of his own bottom. <laughs> as much as Paddington 2 is about marmalade sandwiches, it's also about seeing the best in people and how small acts of compassion, generosity and decency really can make the world a more compassionate, generous and decent place. We both left the cinema with a warm, glowy feeling inside and a renewed belief that maybe things really will be OK in the end. I think it's interesting because normally think, actually, the outside world has got really nothing to do with... The, with what you're going to go and see. But actually, I reckon there'll be a bunch of people like Amelia thinking, OK, well, if if it's all about kindness and it's done brilliantly, then maybe what, know, what else that, am I going to do for the next hour and a half? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I'm sorry that, that, that there have been difficult years, but it is true that Paddington 2 does manage to put a smile on very difficult situations. Denny in Hot Cleared Essex. I had to share my wonderful experience at my local expensive, but justify it with armchairs and waiter service, theatre last week. It was my second viewing of Paddington 2, this time with my 13-year-old daughter. And during the trailer for The Last Jedi, we both had to smile at a young boy who stood up and pretended he was waving a lightsaber at the screen. As a 53-year-old man, I thought it was such a heartwarming image of a child so excited not to care about what anyone else thought, just <laughs> living in the moment. Then as the film was about to start, I reminded myself of what a treat my daughter was in for. As you can imagine, the film did not disappoint, although I did have to consider making a complaint about the dust or whatever it was in my eye at the end. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot thing. of that. I'm yet to compile my top ten of the year, but I'm sure P2 uh, is going to be in there somewhere. Keep up the good work and keep up the good work and away from the harmonica, Mark. Okay. And final word from Niles Butler Walsh. Paddington 2 is a perfect movie. End of discussion. Well, earlier uh, we were hearing from our historian uh, about really small things in movies. Movies which are really very good, but tiny little things that annoy you, probably because it's your area of speciality. Yes. Uh, My Hill to Die On, and his were were the huge uh, headlines in newspapers in the Dickens movie because... They didn't have them. They didn't have them. Uh, Jen from Dundee, My Hill to Die On, as a keen equestrian... I'll never stop being annoyed at seeing gorillas riding horses. In the <laughs> yes, I think that's, that's Steve Coogan with extra, extra lives. I've had long discussions and done my research. It just wouldn't work. <laughs> OK. Uh, chaps, I really get annoyed. But they're using, you know, armed weaponry and everything. That's, that's all right. fine. Yeah. And they speak. But apart from that, I get annoyed with tractor tram lines in serial crops in period films. Thank you, Andy. Uh, dry stone walling in the Cotswolds. Royal Artillery crews in red tunics, not blue, in Last of the Mohicans. Wow. Richard, this is... OK, that is problematic. Specialist work. Yeah. Simon, I'm a philatelist and I'm uh, amazed... The stamps? Is that stamps? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm amazed... With the... Sounds like something a bit rude, doesn't it? <laughs> I, just, I was just thinking philately will get you anywhere. That's the... Ah, very good. Yeah, I'm amazed that when you see letters in a film, how many times the stamp books look wrong or the postmark is obviously ridiculous. However, for memory, I think that the Jude Law Boarfest Cold Mountain got the Confederate mail <laughs> items about right. Also, did anyone else spot the double glazing at the flats outside these scenes in Legend? Anyway, uh, 
We did a we did a screening of um, uh, seventy one with David Holmes, and the poster for that film, which is Jack O'Connell walking down a street in Belfast at the height of the Troubles, and it's a brilliant film and it's shot on Super sixteen uh, in order to give it that kind of grainy feel, and they'd really gone out of their way to make that, and it's a really really interesting film. And we had a still projected on the on the screen of the Plaza in Truro, and we were in front of it. Before I realised, and nobody had ever noticed this, it's actually the poster for the film, there are satellite dishes all the way down the road. The road looks perfectly thin, but there are satellite Apart dishes. Apart from the satellite Except dishes. for the satellite dishes. Now, Steve Coogan is here because, uh, not just because he wanted, he was just walking past and... Uh, no, that was how, that was how it happened. He was just walking past and he thought he'd drop in. I'll, and also, coincidentally, he's got a film out. Yeah. Uh, which is called The Dinner. Hello, Steve. How are you, by the way? Good. Nice nice when life works out like that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's very nice. Well, Jonathan Price was was with us last week to talk about uh, The Man Who Invented Christmas. And he'd been sitting in the green room that you were sitting in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he he had said in, I think it was a Guardian Q&A uh, a few weeks ago, the question was, you know how you get asked ridiculous mm-hmm. questions and you have to come up with an answer. He was asked, which man, which person do you most despise in the entire world? And he'd said, Tony Blair. Anyway, he'd been in there five minutes when Tony Blair walked in uh, <laughs> with all his security. Deep. So I'm just checking everything was fine in the green room for you. Yeah, no, no people are arguably responsible for war crimes uh, in the, the green room. Nicely couched. Well done for bringing that up again, Simon. <laughs> anyway, see, Jonathan Price didn't go there. Uh, so tell, so tell us about the dinner. Give us the setup. For I did the say dinner. arguably. Yes, of course, that was the that was the the excellent. Uh, Qualification. Okay. But tell us about the dinner and and where your character sits in with this. Uh, the dinner is a film about uh, well, ostensibly a dinner uh, in upstate New York, I think, uh, where four people attend. Uh, Richard Gere playing a congressman running for governor. Uh, his wife, played by Rebecca Hall. Uh, his younger brother, played by me, Steve Coogan, and my on-screen wife, Laura Linney. And we all sit down to have dinner and discuss this moral dilemma, which is a personal issue of criminality by the son, by my brother's son, um, which would compromise his quest to become governor. And it's it's where your the sort of the the uh, the clash between your personal morality uh, or, or or political or worldview and when something happens close to home, mm. whether your allegiance should be to the greater morality or to the people closest to you, you know. When... And 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 you play so you're Richard Gere's brother. Tell and tell us about your character. Uh, I pl- he's, he's intrigued. Okay, I play a very cynical uh, failure. I don't know if you've met any of those. <laughs> a resentful well, misanthrope. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> who sort of uh, has a bleak worldview and is sort of acerbic. And acidic. I remember there was a headline in Viz once, not Viz, um, The Onion, that made me laugh. Yeah, it said, yeah. uh, uh, Awful man has witty acerbic take on everything. <laughs> and, and that's sort of the character I play, who, who is uh, honest to a fault, and I, and I mean literally to a fault, insofar as he will speak his mind, you know, laced with a kind of, as this sort of barbed wit, but just be unpleasant as well with it. And uh, it's sort of very self destructive and. and and uh, dismissive. Yeah. He sees his brother as the uh, moral sellout who's, who's done well in his career because he's compromised his morals and he sees himself, my character sees himself as someone who's hung on to his morals and has paid the price. Um, uh, but uh, but the, the, the way the characters are, are, are painted is actually you, you sort of uh, it's surprising. People don't don't conform to type by the end of the film, I suppose, is, is, is the most interesting yeah. thing about it. Uh, and it, it's fair to say that, that your character... Ha- would it, well, is it fair to say that your character has mental health issues? Yes, I think so, yeah. I mean, uh, people who are... 
he somehow wears the weight of his shoulder on uh, wears the, the, world, the weight of the world on his shoulders. I think too readily. Um, you know, we all. I think all of us, and because of that, suffers. You know, we. But when you read the newspaper and you sometimes you you look at something which is uh, something involving like kids being killed horribly in some war zone, and there's only you sort of all of us I think are inclined to turn the page because it, it, it's um, you can't if if you if you sort of wallowed in the detail of these things too much. Um, you know, we, ha- we almost have to anaesthetise ourselves against things that are too grim to contemplate, don't we? And yeah. this, I think his, his his mental illness is that he 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 um, embraces the full horror of all the sins mankind uh, perpetrates on itself. And and all and and the, there's a piece of legislation which your brother Richard Gear is trying to get passed. And and that's a that's relating to mental health as well. Yeah, but my character sees it as passive aggressive because my character as uh, acknowledges that he's suffered from mental health issues, but is just angry about that. Angry and, about and him. thinks that his brother, but wanting to do anything about this, is basically just constantly reminding everybody that his brother has mental health issues, and he takes it as a form of attack on him rather than as a form of solidarity. You've saved me having to say it. <laughs> you, you, you said before. You right. said elsewhere that this yeah. that this was the most difficult thing you've ever done. Uh, did I? <laughs> yeah. Um, you mean you were making uh, it up just for the? I might have been making that up. Um, How difficult it, was it, this? It, it, <laughs> it's, it's quite. It's quite difficult. I mean, it's quite an intense uh, a film. It, it's quite um, heavy. Um, it, it's smart. You know, I think it's a smart film. Um, I think in a in a in a world where all the interesting films that used to be made by studios aren't anymore because that's all franchise movies and bottom lines and all the rest of it and then it, it and it's about some it is it the, the the what i like about it is that it's about something it's got some substance and and uh all the rest of it but uh so uh but it is it was it was quite hard i mean oran movement the director who's a really really i think great director uh Shot all these scenes that, as I say, mostly were centered around this dinner party, but have flashbacks to, you know, to see things that have happened um, prior to the, the scenes at the dinner. Um, is someone who made us shoot the, every scene at night, so yeah. we shot from about five in the evening to five in the morning, almost to make us feel slightly discombobulated, as you do at three <laughs> in the morning when you're working. Uh, and that, I think that paid off. And he doesn't do any rehearsal, so he he sort of throws you in at the deep end. I mean, he literally, there'd be dialogue between four people that you'd read on the page, and some of it's written in parallel, so dialogue that's written to overlap. So when you read it on the page, you think, well, this sounds like it's going to be very noisy. So so dialogue will be on top of other dialogue. And you're looking at this map, and then he'd say, action. And the four actors were all sat around the table we hadn't done rehearsed anything. And you, wow. you're literally thrown in the deep end. And what you... Does that work? Well... Only if the people, and I like to include myself among them, uh, know what they're doing. Right. Uh, because if they're very professional, then it is tough, but you think, well, that they're seasoned. But what you lose in refinement, because it doesn't come out perfectly the first mm-hmm. time, you gain in uh, authenticity because no one's overthinking it, no one's overperforming because they haven't had a chance to. Sometimes you can over rehearse things so they become too yeah. considered and too polished. But you're, but you're crucially, you're not talking about improvisation. You're talking about it's they're, they're written lines, written lines. But you're just having like. So how many, how much of what we see on screen is actually there for the first take? Uh, I would say a considerable number wow. of scenes will be the first take because. Wow. Uh, like I said, you, you you get this. It sounds counterintuitive, but you get it sounds a, nuts. I mean, you, you can get some directors 
make you do the scene over and over and over again. So you go through the polished phase to a, yeah. to a state where you don't care anymore yeah. and they think that gets an, uh, an honest performance. But that takes an awful lot longer. <laughs> Whereas and his, it... his approach is do it now and do it well and you try your best. And, and, and That must be really it, exciting, the, the idea of, you know, get, get it, move on. It is. You, you get on with it and you never get bored But but and you, you, you don't have time to... I think sometimes you can think, so actors can do, is think themselves into a kind of vortex of worry and you don't have time to do that. So it's, I suppose, it's like the chucking the baby in the pool, isn't it, thing? And they just, you either drown or you swim. And every shot is an entire scene. Like, there are no fragments, is that right? Uh, well, there were long takes, which you, which you were probably unable to do in the era of film because, um, yeah, they just keep rolling. So so a scene would play out. It would be almost like a stage play. It would say, it would, the... the, the the take would be five minutes, which is a long time on screen time. It would be yeah. like a five-minute scene with lots of dialogue, and and you'd, you'd go all the way through. And then you'd do it again and cover it from different angles, but but it, it, it would be more or less just played Let's out. Let's play a clip from uh, from the film. Uh, this features Laura Linney as Claire, uh, Claire Lohman, and Steve as Paul. I'm not going. Oh, it takes three months to get a reservation to this place. And, and Stan I really got it overnight. Congratulations. Okay, not well, going. so you don't you don't want them here. You That's refuse right. to go to their place. You don't want to go I'd anywhere. I'd rather stay home with you. That restaurant's a joke. Anyway, it's ridiculous. It sounds super exclusive and sexy and food art. Like going to France. During the German occupation, maybe. <laughs> No, look, I'm sure we're going to get a great table. Great table at a great restaurant, a, a great dinner and great company. It comes at great expense. Stan will pay. I need help. I mean, that kind of expense. You, know, you, you, you pay a bigger price for, for not being able to check. We should say the restaurant is a really annoying restaurant. Um, it's the kind of the kind of place where every course is. I mean, the reason why we it's like thoroughly you, described. We, we might not yeah. like you later, but, but although, although that is in the that is in the, the source novel, isn't it? The thorough description of yes. every every part of the meal, yeah. which because it's moved from Amsterdam to uh, to America. That's it's, right. Yeah. But your character says you'd rather go for a pizza, and ninety nine percent of the audience would go, "Yep." <laughs> yes, given the choice of a pizza or, or these annoying waiters and waitresses coming up uh, with a perfect description or a weird description of the food that you're eating every five minutes, I'll go for the pizza too. I know, yeah. Well, I mean, we, I experienced some of that on uh, with Rob Brydon doing the, the trip trip series uh, slash films. And um, that when you eat in these... <laughs> I mean, like I say, talking about first world problems, I get annoyed at eating in very expensive restaurants. Well, poor old you, right? But, but, nevertheless, but. No, uh, when you're in those best restaurants with, 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 that, that do exist, those you don't know and you're not missing much, is where they have 12 courses or something like that. And, and it, it is, it's the case that, and I mean this literally, that the, the time it takes to describe the food is longer than it takes to eat it. Because it will take a good 30 seconds sometimes to describe the food. And it will take you ten seconds to eat it, and um, and I think well, and th- this this restaurant was a slight pastiche on on yeah. those very pretentious restaurants that, that have interesting food, but you know, nice covered. yeah, but you know, thank you, <laughs> um, but uh, you do sometimes find yourself craving a fried egg sandwich when you're when you're in in that scene that we just said. Are you and given the way that the director chose to film it, the way you've described, and it's not rehearsed. If you ad lib something. If you put something in and improvise it, is is that in? Does that does that stay in? Or uh, well, I mean, there the were the, yes, there were some things that I added in, uh, not much to be honest, but there were definitely little bits of improvising. There's a scene on the stairwell with the maitre d of the restaurant. I have a conversation with him about. Uh, I can't remember quite what it is, but I remember most of that was improvised in re- in a the first take, I should say, mm. and 
I'd say, I've got an idea. And he'd say, well, just throw it in when we shoot it. I'll see if I like it. Uh, Aaron Movement had worked with Richard Gere before in uh, Time Out of Mind and got a really brilliant performance out of him. What was Richard Gere like? What was he like to work with? Uh, he was very nice. Uh, of course, I'm going to say that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, well, it, considering the first scene we shot was at Gettysburg, where I'm supposed to be having some breakdown and I'm being very angry with him and he's supposed to be my big brother and it's very intense. And, of course, I just met him. Uh, but he was very nice, gave me a big hug call me brother and all that stuff. And we had long <laughs> chats about some mutual friends we had. And, uh, but what's in, what, what, what did happen was that he punched me um, squarely in the face uh, because we were shooting a, it was accidental. Oh, right. I, I, I hasten to add. Well, I think it was because uh, we were shooting this fight scene at the end where I'm in the snow and he, he starts punching me and um, I'm supposed to dodge it. And he connected. And I didn't move quickly enough, and he really caught me very hard on, on the on the cheekbone, so hard that I was sort of dazed momentarily, and went down in the snow. And he said, "Oh my God, I I, I hit him!" And uh, and I went, we, so we stopped filming. I went into this house nearby because it was outside. We we're in the snow; it's quite cold, and put an ice pack on my face. And w w when I, I was in there, um, Laura Linney had told him that I do this bit about him in the trip, the first trip, where I say, this is how Richard Gere acts. And I do a whole routine about how he looks off into the middle distance. And blinks. And laughs quietly, <laughs> a private thought that we'll never know what, what it was, and then returns to the dialogue. And, and She, she told him? She told him. He came up to me when I had the ice pack on my head and said, that's for doing that thing in the trip about me. You think I'd let you get away with that? So I'm not wow. quite sure whether it was... Uh, uh, serious or just an accident? I think he stepped up in my estimation as a result. I know it's, it's quite. It's, uh, <laughs> well, Mark's always going around and blinking. I, I, look, I love be punched by a Buddhist. Exactly. exactly right. very good. <laughs> I love Richard Gere. I also think that Richard Gere's um, acting is largely blinking, looking down, and exhaling. And I and and I and I love him for doing it. And mm. I could watch him walk across a room forever because nobody walks like Richard Gere. And there are many Richard Gere films in which he, I think he's really brilliant. There are many Richard Gere films in which I think he's quite terrible. But I will watch any Richard Gere film. Because I think, I mean, I think the Richard Gere remake of Breathless is actually better than a Buddhist Souffle. Wow, wow! That's and he's a, he's a notoriously that's tricky that's... interview, so I'm glad it's you. But you got on well with him because you talked about music. Well, yeah, we got on. Well, the interview was kind of average until I said, and I just introduced myself. I said, "I'm Simon. I'm doing the interview." He said, oh, "Hello, I'm Richard." So, so we sat there, and then halfway through, I thinking, "This needs a rocket." This interview. Mm -hmm. So I said, "I should say, by the way, Richard, you ruined my life." Oh yeah. Uh, which he said. Uh, what he, uh, at least he perked up anyway, yeah. at this point yeah and i was just talking about an officer and a gentleman where he plays uh, oliver mayo and he gets shouted at as mayonnaise all the way through mm -hmm. and so through school everything it's been mayonnaise ever since anyway so there after that he was fine and we were he didn't punch me but you know it was uh it was it was it was a good moment so you got on yeah yeah we did yeah it was it was uh yeah, it was it was fun. You know, it was. Uh, I mean, all we, we, there was there were, there were the four of us in this this derelict house, dressed up to be like a classy restaurant in upstate New York, and all the way through the night, we only had the company of each other. So, um, well, Laura Linney, Rebecca Hall. I mean, it's pretty good company. It was there. good. You know, we had good chats, and also I think because they're they're all pretty seasoned, and uh, Rebecca Hall, you know, is, is younger, but she's she's a, she's got a chops, you know. Yeah. Uh, so th we weren't. There was not much kind of um, existential angst about the roles we were playing. We just chatted in between. So wow. Yeah. Um, can I ask you? I, we, I mean, we've touched on the dilemma, uh, the kind of moral dilemma, which we which we get to 
after a while in the uh, uh, in the movie. But your director says it poses the impossible question. This is the film in general. What would you do if your children have committed a horrible crime? How far would you go to protect them? Do you expect the? Uh, you know, what would you expect uh, to do? And uh, we had our Wittertainment Christmas party, which yeah. involved just going for a curry, which is like the perfect kind of Christmas. Description party. of the food took five seconds, and it was lovely. <laughs> That's right. <it> was <laughs> and we debated for about half an hour as to what you would do if your children had committed a crime as horrible as the one that is committed mm. uh, in this film. And I, would, I was genuinely surprised the extent to which it would be a moral issue because I thought, well, obviously, you'd behave in this particular way. Mm. Mm. And then was, everyone said, no, I don't think parents would. I think many parents would, would defend their kids, you know, and all that. I mean, mm. did you... Do you think that it's... What a, would I do if my daughter did something to... No, no, I, no I don't think that. But, but do, you think there's a genuine, <laughs> do you think there is a genuine moral dilemma at the heart of it? Because your director is saying it poses an impossible question. Well, I think, I think it's, it's not just about that. It's about... It's about I mean, it, it, uh, on one hand, it's about, you know, whether you would, uh, you know, uh, compromise your principles for a personal matter. And I think people often do. Um, there's nothing. There's no judgment in that. I think it's just. I suppose something is something that you have to talk about, isn't it? Um, in terms of politics, in terms of the macro and the micro, and whether you, you know, whether you do, you know, how you arrive at decisions and where I think those things are compromised. Um, and I don't think there's a, a right or wrong answer, really. I I'm not sure how I'd answer that question, you know, because I think it would depend on circumstances. I mean, it depends how bad the crime was, I suppose. Yeah, which in this case is very bad. Um, but what's great about that final point uh, in that in that debate is that the sides take up surprising positions. Yes, you expect the politician to be immediately the slimy one and your character to be the one that sort of speaks the false truth and actually the, 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 the drama plays with all that very well. And, it, you know, it, it treads sort of similar territory to, you know, like what Richard did in raising those... Uh, th those ideas, and it was interesting that we did argue about it for half an hour, and then we and then we argued a bit more about what the ending meant, can, and then we went home. Yeah, we yeah. got no, we got no, before we got we got ninety seconds before yeah. we finished. Yeah, sure. What can you tell us about the Laurel and Hardy picture? Uh, I've done it again. It's finished. That Laurel, Laurel, no, Laurel and Hardy. That's right. Laurel that's correct. Hardy. Yeah. Uh, well, the film's called Stan and Ollie. Just to shake things up a bit. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's finished. Uh, it's I think we're um, it's going to be at one of the festivals next year. But with very the, the studio behind it is very happy with it. And uh, John C. Riley plays Oliver Hardy, and I play Stan Laurel. And there's some funny bits in it, and it's quite sad. It sounds like, but when as soon as you explain, you go, it's perfect casting. Yeah, well, it's it's also it's about the the autumn of their careers in the 1950s. They were touring Britain on their sort of on their uppers because they had no money. Uh, and it's about two men who have known each other for a long time but not really got to know each other. So it's about it's about sort of a love story between two aging men. Not not a gay one. Don't look not at us. anything wrong with being gay. <laughs> <laughs> Can I very quickly say you won't, you won't remember this, but back of course you won't. But back in the 1980s, we did gigs together. Yes, I was in I a, do. Oh, you do? Yeah, oh, of course, I remember. Yeah, I, th I think I booked you for a gig. You did, you uh, did, Steve. Uh, yeah, you uh, did, uh, and you never paid. Uh, <laughs> no, it, did. Well, it, I think it was in Crumbstall in North Manchester. Yeah, we did Southern birthday. Hotel. We did quite a few, but yes, you did. And yeah. I was just going to say you were always. Yeah, you were very good. You were very good. Yeah, we did do to do uh, quite a few. They almost seem like halcyon days <laughs> now, almost. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we should say Alan is back on television on the twenty seventh. Uh, of of what? Oh, oh the, this month. There's yes. a documentary about 25 years of Alan Partridge and we are doing a new series for the BBC. There you go. Uh, Alan Partridge... <laughs>
Steve Coogan. Thank you very much, Steve. So the dinner uh, is out today, and if you go and sit, you will have a moral argument when you come out. So just be careful who you go with. Steve, thank you very much, Steve, for coming. Yes. Uh, Mark, what are you going to be reviewing in the next hour? Uh, stronger, Better Watch Out, Human Flow, Menasha, and more. Good afternoon. Welcome to the programme. Talking movies between now and four o'clock. If you just joined us, you've missed Steve Coogan. He's just walking out the building. Uh, and his movie is The Dinner. So we'll get to all the other movies, plus your correspondence on uh, this and other related topics. Um, are you going to do... You, well, you, yeah, well, I've we, said a few things about The Dinner. Yes, well, I mean, I, I think we, we've covered it to some extent, but so essentially the story is, is that there's the four characters, they are there for the course of this dinner during which they argue about this this central thing that at the beginning Richard Gere's character says, we have to talk about this, and for a long time they avoid talking about it, and then they talk about it, and it is that their children have been involved in some terrible enterprise and it is therefore how they deal with it. And what is interesting is that the film sets up a number of characters. You know, Richard Gere is the the sort of the slimy wannabe congressman who you immediately imagine can't be trustworthy and when he can't get into a restaurant, walk across the room because he has to shake hands with everybody and he's constantly on the phone and he's constantly uh, neglecting his partner, played by uh, Rebecca Hall. Meanwhile, Steve Coogan's character is constantly cross, constantly cross at the world, always sees his glass half full, takes everything as an affront, thinks that his brother, has, that he's always lived in the shadow of his brother, that his brother even took their parents' attention away from them. And during the course of the drama, which as I said before, is based on a based on a, a, on a novel uh, by Herman Koch, um, our sort of, our assumptions about what each of the characters is like changes and this all plays out interspersed with the various courses of as you said before this very sort of pretentious meal in which everything is described in great literary length with the maitre d explaining you know exactly what's on it is basically it's lark's tongues in aspects isn't it and, you know and, and this is and this is drenched in angel tears brought from the you know the the, the, the golga frinchian you know outer ring and all the rest of it and i th- i think on the on the positive side, I think the, the performances are all strong. I mean, these are really good players. Steve Coogan, obviously, uh, Richard Gere, uh, Laura Linney, Rebecca Hall. I mean, those are all, as he was saying, they're, they're seasoned performers who know what they're doing. And actually, I'm happy to watch them do it. It's very interesting that uh, that the film is shot essentially with first takes and no rehearse. I cannot imagine what that must be like. Um, Oren Movement has got brilliant work out of gear in the past. I mean, Time Out of Mind, I think, is one of the things you think of recently when you think of sort of potential awards material for Richard Gere. And they, they clearly click and they clearly work together. Oren Movement's CV, incidentally, as well as a writer, um, is very impressive. He has a writing credit on um, Love and Mercy, which I, I, I absolutely loved. Uh, I think if there's a problem with the film, it is that it is too long. Uh, there is a whole sort of uh, Gettysburg section, which, which the, because what we have is we have the central and dinner. Steve's character is obsessed with with Gettysburg. Yeah, which is fine, but I'm not sure that as we as we flash away from there, because when we're in, we're in the meal, and you know the immediate lead up to the meal, Richard Gere arriving in his car, Laura Linney and Steve Coogan having almost an argument but not quite at home about whether or not they should actually go in the first place. Once you get to the mill itself, it becomes like a sort of film stage play, a very well-filmed stage play. And then the flashbacks and the diversions are not necessarily exactly where they need to be. And I do think that that idea of you know cutting to the core is always a good idea. <clears throat> and even I, who was intrigued by the ideas and, 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 and like the players, thought this is running too long. And it is. It's about 20 minutes too long. But I think within the sort of bagginess of it, and it's, I think I, I, I know that, it's, that some reviewers have turned their noses up at, up at it and found it very hard. The company is very difficult. I mean, this is, they're a suffocating group of people. And the, you know, some of the other reviews have been, not that there are any other reviewers no. in my life, 
other than yeah, you, but me. they've been really hard on it. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there you go. What are you going to do? I'm a big fan of Hudson Hawk. Um, I'm not saying this is Hudson Hawk, but I think that there, I think that there's a there is a a, a good and solid uh, central thing in the movie. I think the problem is it kind of gets lost amid the blancmange of the rest of the of the. It's, it's like it's the film is there's two courses too many. You know, if we just had starter, main course, and dessert, it would have been fine. It, we, we lose it, we you know with the fact that it's a aperitif and all the rest of it. So it it needs to be trimmed down. But I I think that there is something at the heart of it. It is a film that is about something, and I think the performances are great. I think Rebecca Hall is really really. Great. I mean, I think she's great in everything. And I I I wasn't bored. I was exasperated on some occasions. I thought that, that it, it it was exasperating. Uh. So that's The Dinner, uh, which is out today. Other reviews coming in just a second. Rachel Main on an email. Yes. Mark. What? And Simon. Oh, yes. good. Okay. I have been a witted trainee for quite some time, uh, many years, actually. I've struggled to find the most appropriate venue to regularly immerse myself in your cinematic ramblings. Yes. However, after recently starting a new job that involves a 30-minute drive each way, I am finding much more time to indulge in some uninterrupted time with your bad selves. I've just caught up on the episode featuring Simon's interview with John Lithgow, whom I found delightful to listen to, almost like listening to Santa. I think we all found him delightful to listen to, and yes. I think we all wished that Dad, Daddy's Home 2 was, was better. And had been waiting for Mark's inevitable rant about Justice League with eager anticipation throughout the episode. It was perhaps due to this excitement that I was taken by utter surprise by the letter from a fellow listener about her experience of Arles whilst watching Notting Hill. Now, as previously mentioned, due to the Justice League... Anticipation. I was not feeling especially weepy on this particular morning commute, so imagine my shock and surprise when, as the garden scene was described, I found myself welling up. How could such an innocuous mention of a scene in a film, not even one I was watching and at no altitude, induce such an emotional response? I can only attribute it to a condition that I'd like to propose being named movie-based early morning emotional suggestibility or memes <laughs> and wondered if anyone else suffered from this irrational behaviour when listening whilst commuting. So, it's, so you're not actually watching the movie. So you're just thinking that, about it's it. It's the thought and the recall of the memory which is making you yeah, okay. well up. Do you ever well up at the memory of a scene in a film? Yeah, that you're not yeah, watching? yeah. I mean, you know, I think about Emma Thompson listening to Joni Mitchell in that film, and that will dip in, and, and, and uh, yes. Or I think about Bruce Dern saying, you know, look after the look after the forests before going off and leaving the drone, you know, with the watering can, and that just reduces me to floods of tears. Or I think of Jeremy. And the moment in which Jeremy says, promise me you'll never forget me. And she says, how can you even say that? In fact, even thinking about that now, we are going to have to move on. Really? Yeah. Are you, are you welling up? You are? Oh, it's, it's, yeah, I'm sorry. I love that film. And I, I, love, you... I love when you get completely surprised by, by stuff like that. So I know this is slightly tangential. Yeah. But um, I saw Edith Bowman uh, this week at, at, uh, at one of the screenings. Edith, occasionally of this parish yes. uh, as well. Who, as you know, and this is relevant, is the other half... Of, which, uh, of Tom Smith, right, from editors. So Smith and Burroughs have this song called uh, When the Thames Froze, which is a Christmas song from a couple of years ago. And I've been listening to it that morning. And the verses, and it's a beautiful song, it's a really, really lovely Christmas tune, yeah. and I do recommend it. Maybe we could add it to the playlist. We haven't added anything to the playlist for, like, months. OK, no, we haven't, no. So the verses are pretty miserable. And then when the chorus comes in, I well up absolutely every single time. And I have, abs no, I have no idea why. Why that, as opposed to... Is it the juxtaposition of the joy of the chorus against the misery of the verses? Is it the melody structure? Is it the chord structure that he uses? So I said to him, can you ask Tom 
Why is it? What is it? And then she got back to me. She said, I've got a message. I've got a message. I've got a message. And the answer was, it's magic stuff. And that was it. Oops. Very good. So that was it. So I have absolutely no reason why uh, it makes me well up, but apparently it's magic stuff. Excellent. Uh, it's 30 minutes past three o'clock. What you got then? So let's do uh, Stronger, which is a film song. It is Gyllenhaal, isn't it? We, we do this every time. Gyllenhaal. 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 I always want to say Gyllenhaal, but Gyllenhaal. Uh, plays Jeff Bowman, the uh, young Bostonian who uh, lost his legs in the... 2013 marathon bombing and became a symbol of the Boston strong mantra. So it's a true story. Um, and when we first meet, uh, when we first meet Jeff, he's just broken up with his girlfriend, Erin, played by Tanya Maslany, who, with whom he appears to have broken up many times before. And this time she appears to have finally had enough of him. And the suggestion is that it's because he's unreliable and he doesn't show up and he's you know he's not he's not the person that, that that she needs him to be and so he's desperate to demonstrate to her that he is the kind of person that will show up and she says that she's going to run the marathon so in order to kind of attempt to, to win her back he goes to the marathon holding a sign that you know sort of a supportive sign so he's actually he's in exactly the wrong place at exactly the wrong time when this uh, terrible atrocity strikes she then comes to visit him in hospital after he miraculously survives. And this is the conversation afterwards. Should have seen the sign I made for you. What did they? Like 3D letters and everything. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Don't say that. I'm so sorry. Hey. I'll see ya. You don't owe me anything. There have been films that have dealt with this, you know, very recent event before. Um, they have they have looked in different directions. In the case of this, what's interesting about it is that it's directed by David Gordon Green and it's fairly reflective and it is it concentrates very much on. Uh, Jeff Bowman's own journey, <coughs> excuse me, and what his own personal experience is, and what then happens to him. Because obviously, what if you've seen the trailer, you'll know that the story is it's to do with his recovery, but it's also to do with him finding himself suddenly in a position in which he is this the centre of this attention. That this life changing event has happened to him, that he has survived miraculously. Moreover, he has actually seen one of the bombers, and he's able almost immediately to, to say one of the first things he writes is, I, I saw, get, you know, get the authorities, and he's therefore involved in that. But the film isn't interested in them. It's interested in him, and it's interested in his family, and it's interested in, in their story. And uh, so that, I, I think, is very engaging because it's, it's very clear about what its focus is. And Gyllenhaal gives, you know, a typically committed performance in the lead role as somebody who is swinging between resentment and resolution and also finding themselves suddenly the centre of attention in which they are being asked to carry a huge weight. The weight that they're being asked to carry is the weight of survival, of defiance, of becoming a symbol of the, you know, Boston Strong mantra. And he's brought to sporting events and brought out in front of crowds and people want to meet him and people want to take photographs of him. Meanwhile, he's still dealing with, you know, all the things that he was dealing with before, with the, the relationship with his girlfriend, what the future of his life is. 
and the film is very takes a uh, you know a, is is very clear not to sort of to portray some kind of you know two dimensional hero. It's not just you know what you might think about sort of, you know overcoming incredible odds, which is absolutely part of the story. But it's to do with wrestling with the position that he finds himself in, and it's also for me was centrally about their relationship, about the way in which their relationship. Um, was built on everything that had happened around it, the way in which you got a sense of the history of their relationship and the future of their relationship. And I absolutely believed in, in, in the portrayals of those two characters and I believed in what was happening to them as I was watching it play out on screen. Um, there's a certain kind of movie which is, you know, the sort of the, the, the surging score, the, the, the triumph over adversity film, which can sometimes feel very manipulative. In the case of this, it, it worked for me. I mean, I, I was very moved. It is a moving story. There's no question about it. There are many moments in which, it, 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 you know, you, you're moved to tears. There are many moments of, of laughter in it as well. But it, it, it felt honest. It felt like what it was. It wasn't being exploitative. It wasn't, uh, you know, it, it wasn't trying to turn this into a melodrama. What it was trying to do was to look honestly at a really difficult situation and to turn that into a drama which made sense to the audience. It's helped by some terrific uh, supporting performances. Miranda Richardson plays um, Jeff's mum, Patty, and is, is great. I mean, I love Miranda Richardson anyway, but it's a really sort of full-on Miranda Richardson performance, not what you think of as you know somebody who's immediately sympathetic, somebody who's tough and somebody who smokes and drinks and you know speaks their own mind and speaks it in quite a harsh way and can, can be overbearing and can be cantankerous. And so... Whilst you're you're dealing with um, a, a genre of film which often falls back on formulae, and there's there's nothing there's nothing here that, that you think of as you know breaking the cinematic mold. It's not a film that reimagines the way in which this kind of story can be told. It's not a film which is structurally you know adventurous or complex. But what it is 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 well made, and and it works. It works in as much as you you become involved in the story, you become involved with the characters, you. You know, I always say this thing about I, I I hate using that phrase, but you go on a journey with them because that is the, that is the sort of the thing that you always saw. But I did feel whilst watching it that you do see the journey that, but the two central characters, you know, go through, and it was moving and it was convincing, and I thought the performances felt very sort of sturdy and heartfelt, and uh, and and the film itself had, you know, a tone of honesty, which you need if you're going to make a film about, you know, this sort of event. You need to do it from a, from an honest position rather than anything that feels that you're exploiting it or anything that feels that you're, you know, you're addressing recent history and turning it into something which is saleable to the public. So I I was surprisingly touched by it and uh, and I, I thought it was... It, it wasn't quite the film that I imagined it to be and I was glad that that was the case and, you know, really, really uh, good performances... And I did think it was. I did think it had a, it had a, a, a really decent heart. Uh, Amanda in Reading, Simon and Mark. Uh, despite listening to your show almost every week, I have never been moved or inspired enough to contribute. That was until I saw Stronger on Monday night. I okay. was aware of the basic storyline and events on which the film is based, and I'm a great fan of Jake Gyllenhaal's film. So I was hoping that Stronger was going to be another of his impressive roles. And I was not disappointed. OK, good. I, sorry, sorry, can I just say, the way you were reading that, and I think you were doing it on purpose... I wouldn't it, I that. felt like it was going to go a different way. It was an immensely moving performance which showed the brutality of living with such horrific and life-changing injuries. Whilst there were one or two sentimental 
We won't let them defeat us scenes. I felt it was an honest portrayal of the impact such events have, not just on the immediate victims, but their wider circle of family and friends. It could have happened to any one of us and still could. Innocent bystanders going out for a nice day. Jake Gyllenhaal's performance was very authentic. How he and the filmmakers made it appear as if it was a real, as though he was a real amputee, I have no idea. Can An inspiring and thought-provoking film. Just before you read the next thing, can you say something about that? You said there was a couple of scenes, which is, you know, we, we will triumph, all that, that stuff. Actually, one of the most intriguing scenes is a scene in which he's, he's in a bar and somebody comes up to him and says exactly that, you know, you're a symbol of strength, you're a symbol of overcoming, they will not, they will not defeat us. And he says... Well, from where I'm sitting, I feel that they have that you know they that they are, and he's kind of quite acerbic and he's quite harsh about it. And and the the person who said this to him is sort of rather taken aback because they expect him to be one thing, and in fact he's not. He says, you know, from where I am, it, this this does look like that. And I think that the film is not afraid to play with those ideas. It's not afraid to play with the resentment as well as the resolution. Uh, Debbie Patterson in Glasgow. I was in Portugal on holiday month ago. I had the pleasure of seeing Stronger due to its earlier release date there. It's such a moving and uplifting story and in these dark days shows us all that there is a way out of even the most bleak situations. Jake Gyllenhaal gives an incredible performance and I urge everyone to go and see it to honour the struggles that Jeff and all of the others involved uh, have been through. So that is Stronger, which is, uh, which is out today. 3.22, what else have we got? I'm going to leap forward slightly. I'm going to do better watch out. So... Always around this time of year, you know, we get a, a slew of Christmas movies and then there'll be the Christmas movie that's like the slightly nasty Christmas movie that we're always kind of quite glad comes along. So Krampus or, or um, oh, Rare Krampus, Export. Do you remember Krampus? Yeah. Krampus. That ran for ages, didn't it? Okay, so Better Watch Out, um, about which I knew very little at all other than it's a horror movie which is playing on the uh, on the lyrics from Santa Claus is Coming to Town. You better mm. better watch out. You better. That's right, isn't it? Better take care. Better take care. Um, uh, I, there's a reindeer over there. Santa Claus is coming, coming down. Uh, so the story is that there is uh, a babysitter who is about to do her last night sitting for uh, Luke. I think he's 12, nearly 13. I think that's what he says. Um, played by uh, Levi Miller, um, who's just finished filming in Ava DuVernay's Wrinkle in Time. And Luke has convinced himself that he has a chance with the babysitter, despite the fact that she's much older than him and because he's, you know, he's a young kid and he's, you know, he's delusional. And he's, he has concocted with his friend, uh, played by Ed Oxenbold from The Visit, that they will concoct this plan that, that, they, that they will put on a scary movie and he will watch a scary movie, the babysitter will watch a scary movie with him and she will be so scared by the movie that she will immediately sort of fall into his arms because he... Because it always works like that. Because it always yeah. works like that. He also thinks that that uh, the, the easy way to impress her is to crack open a bottle of his parents' champagne, which he does. Luke? Lucas, what are you doing? Oh, you what? No, you're way too young to be drinking. Give me that. Oh, this? Yes, that. Give it to me. Lucas, stop. What has gotten into you? One time me and Garrett drank a whole bottle. He puked so bad. Can't always look her like me. Wow, I'm super impressed. Okay, now give it. Lucas, I'm so serious right now. Don't. Thank you. Oh my God. Pardon me. You forgot to shut the door, doofus.
And you hear the slightly sinister Christmas movie tinkling outside. So they yeah. start to they shut wow, the door. What, they what's start. What's going to happen? Next? Yeah, exactly. What's going to happen next? They start watching the movie, and then of course there is somebody prowling around outside. Is, is it, it who is it? Well, is it a boyfriend of Ashley, played by Olivia Young, who's also in the visit with uh, Ed Oxenbold? Is it somebody playing a prank, or is it something worse? Well, who is it? I'm not going to tell you because that's that would be that would be a spoiler. But what I will say is this: this is a very odd film, and on one level, the it's it's a it's a black comedy horror that isn't very funny, but is quite nasty in an odd and creepy way. Um, it's been called things like Home Alone meets The Bad Seed or Gremlins meets Funny Games. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, the man who fell from grace with, with the sea meets the Santa Claus, although none of those things are kind of accurate. Oddly enough... There was a seven. There was a paperback in the 1970s called "Let's Go Play at the Adams," a really horrible, pedophobic uh, paperback um, that was on you know every W. H. Smith uh, railway stand forever and ever and ever. And sort of nasty piece of horror fiction. And about half an hour in, I thought, "Wow, this is really odd because this is actually turning into Let's Go Play at the Adams." It then proceeds to sort of unravel in this odd sort of balancing act between on the one hand being creepy, nasty horror and on the other hand having sort of funny knockabout slapstick gags that never quite come together. And I was reminded when I was when I was watching it, I was reminded of the, the visit in which I thought the problem with the visit was it couldn't make up its mind whether it was funny or scary and it actually ended up being neither, although I know a lot of people really, really like the visit. Um, and in the case of this, I kept thinking, why, why isn't, why aren't I impressed by the fact that it's a nasty, mean-spirited movie? Because actually, when you're talking about, uh, and we, you and I had this conversation a bit earlier on, because I had seen the film when we when we had the, the meal, and I said, you know, I, I didn't like it, but there is, it, it had a nastiness to it. And you said, and why is that good? I said, well, because there is something about the fact that the, that the film ha- the film is quite mean-spirited and quite cruel. But that, well, that's not good. That, either. Well, in, in, when you're t- talking about horror, it sometimes can be mean spirited and cruel. But the thumbs up. No, no, no. But that's not what I'm exactly what I'm saying is that's not the case. Because whilst I was watching it, I what I didn't enjoy it. I didn't think it was fun. I thought it was creepy in places, but not in a good way. Creepy. I thought you know the performances were fairly spirited, but it wasn't a film that I thought you know I'm enjoying this. I did think for a lot of it, I just would like this to be finished now because it it's swinging between on the one hand being creepy and nasty, and on the other hand being goofy in a way which doesn't quite work. I mean, if you think about a film like Gremlins, for example, the genius of Gremlins is that Gremlins is jokes with teeth. I mean, Gremlins is really, really funny, but Gremlins has also got that whole weird thing about the guy getting stuck down the chimney. And it's a very, very peculiar... I mean, probably the same is true of Krampus and certainly the same is true of a film like Rare Exports. And this doesn't have that. It felt oddly misjudged to me. And I, whilst I was watching it, I kept thinking... I, it bothers me that I'm not more impressed by the by the tonal uncertainty of it because there's a certain thing that you can do when you're talking about horror and comedy and satire and I mean there are there are a couple of sort of you know fairly broad comic performances Virginia Madsen and Patrick Warburton are the parents and they lend very obvious comic relief so when you start you think you're in that area or you think you're in the same tonal area as Happy Death Day and we're not in that area at all it's much much less fun than that and I actually you know I didn't like it very much and I don't think that it's very good. But it is oddly nasty and oddly reminiscent of 
as I said, oddly reminiscent of Let's Go Play at the Adams, which is a really, really peculiar point of reference. So and maybe, and maybe I almost certainly don't uh, need to say it, but just in case, in case you're wondering, pedophobic meaning fear of children. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. Did no, I, just, I, oh, sorry, I should, I should have glossed no, no, Yeah, yeah. Just, fear of children, yeah. Worth, worth just underlining. Yeah, sorry, of course. Uh, okay, so uh, what's that called again? It's called it's called Better Watch Out. And as I said, the thing is that Better Watch Out is obviously what it's doing is taking that idea of a Christmas, you know, of a, 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 something a, which sounds, sounds like it sounds like it's right. But usually at this time of year, you will get the films, you know, like Krampus or like Rare Exports or like Gremlins, in which, you know, you, 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 you add an or you add an, a sort of an acerbic twist to the to the seasonal festivities. And usually I've enjoyed it more than... In the case of this, I didn't like it and I didn't enjoy it. I was just... It, it was just, yeah, weirdly creepy and nasty. Scenes from movies, the mere recall of or someone mentioning the scene make you well up. Yes. Okay. Richard in Stockbridge, uh, thanks to you, a grown man has just been crying in his car. Brassed off. Oh, movie. They get so. back from the Battle of the Bands and Pete Postlethwaite's character walks off alone and then collapses. Does me every time, even when going to pick up the kids. Uh, Andrew in Bristol, welling up, just thinking of the sad bit near the end of the road. Hopefully doesn't give anything away. Well, that's the whole of the, the whole, road. The whole, the whole of the road is the sad bit before the end of the road. <clears throat> that's the movie that I had to leave for work purposes before the, the merest hint of redemption yeah. turned up. But anyway, Andrew didn't like it. Les in Banbury, the scene near the end of Brokeback Mountain when Ennis goes to visit Jack's bedroom. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah that is. The thought of it makes me well up with emotion. Yes, I can understand that. Uh, Martin in Southend, I can tear up just thinking of the daddy, my daddy scene. Yes, we all can. Let's not even talk about it. Okay, is, is this a struggle, this particular... It is. I'm finding it quite hard. ...of correspondence for you. Uh, 85058, mayo at bbc.co.uk. What are you going to do next? Uh, we're going to do Blade of the Immortal. We're probably going to do Matter of Life and Death. If we get a chance, we're going to do uh, Human Flow and hopefully Menashe. Actually, if I can disagree with that piece of BBC promotion... Yes. Uh, the sound of Friday night yeah. uh, should involve Mark Kermode on Radio 2. So, obviously, there's... Uh, it's yeah. Request Friday, then it's Tony Blackburn, and then you're doing your um, Friday night's music night. So this is, yes, tonight, which is tonight, uh, second chance to hear the... We did the music of John Williams um, for BBC Concert Orchestra, Friday night's music night. So that's they're repeating that tonight at 8 o'clock. And then you can also go to the website and you can remix some of the... There's a this weird way in which you can listen to the orchestra and remix stuff from Jaws and Star Wars and Jurassic Park. And, you know, uh, have fun doing it yourself. Or you can just watch, uh, listen to Friday Night's Music Night, which is the music of John Williams from 8 o'clock. 3.37, TV <clears throat> Movie of the Week. This is um, a list of some of the best films on subscription fee television and posted on our... Always award- sounds like you're saying subscription fee. ...award-winning Facebook page every Wednesday. John first. <coughs> Excuse me. My pick would probably be Shaun of the Dead, having just watched Hot Fuzz recently and now want to revisit its I love predecessors. Hot Fuzz. I love Hot Fuzz. I think Mark will go with About Time. The Christmas season does call for a bit of Richard Curtis, and you can't go wrong with the likes of Donald Gleason. Oh, look, there he is. <laughs> Rachel McAdams and Bill Nye. Simon Brown says, I think Mark will pick The Descendants, arguably George Clooney's finest performance to date, and evokes memories of director. Alexander Payne's masterpiece that is sideways. From a guilty pleasure perspective, I would have to go with My Cousin Vinny 
Who knew Joe Pesci could do intentional comedy so well? (laughs) Great supporting cast with Academy Award winner Marissa Tomei, Ralph the Karate Kid, Machio and Judge Herman Munster. Would you say on the subject of Marissa Tomei winning the the Oscar for uh, My Cousin Vinny? And there was a lot of stuff, people saying, oh yeah, it was the wrong, they got the wrong envelope because people, because she hadn't been the bookie's favourite and it was surprising, it was was a terrific comic performance. And um, and then of course what happened with um, Moonlight and La La Land uh, demonstrated that those mix-ups don't happen. With, when they do happen, they get corrected. So once and for all, that did demonstrate that that whole thing about, yeah, it was the wrong envelope, was proven to be complete nonsense. Chad Williams says, it's a great list this week. Toy Story should be everyone's choice. Think back to a time before we'd heard of Pixar. This is the film that changed the way we view animation. I still remember going to see it because it's a PG. Yes. Just to make sure that my uh, the child won. In fact, there was only one child at the time. <laughs> That's how long uh, ago it was. That it was okay. That it was just it was child. Okay. No, there was a child too, actually. But I had to go and see it just to make sure that it's all right because that, yeah. that creepy bit with the, the yeah, toys. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but assuming Mark has chosen Toy Story before, my pick would be About Time, flawed but heartwarming tale with Mr Gleeson. Of this, oh, there, there he is. Of this parish, Simon's review still rings in my ears. It made me want to call my dad, apparently, I said. Mark will choose Paper Tiger. David uh, McCann says, Phantasm is the kind of movie that makes you want to make a movie. <laughs> Low-budget horror done very creatively. Joe Brody says, About time, I first saw it about the time my dad became ill and later died. Thought it was going to be a light-hearted, cheery comedy. Turned out to be much more cathartic than expected. Also has the very excellent Tom Hollander in it. I think Mark will pick it too. And Claire Murphy says, I'm going to be picking My Cousin Vinny because it's got everything you could ask for in a film. Mark will also pick it for the same reason. A burp is spontaneous, a burp is not romantic. Anyway, what is our TV movie of the week? I'm not just being difficult, but I'm going to go for Live and Let Die. And I'm because <laughs> nobody picked that up at all. Absolutely <clears throat> no one is going 25 to 7 on Saturday, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> on ITV4. Nice. And the reason is, um, I haven't seen Live and Let Die in a really long time. It was the first Bond film that I saw in the cinema. Me too. And I started thinking about it because you just said that thing about you had to go and see Toy Story because it had a PG certificate and you wanted to know whether or not it was it was okay for Child 1 to, to, to go see. And I remember really clearly my mum and dad going to see Live and Let Die, which was an A certificate movie, on the Saturday to see whether it was all right for us to go see it on the Sunday. And I remember waiting for them to come home and give us the thumbs up or the thumbs down and whether it was all right. And they came in and they went, well, it's probably all right. And I thought it was great because I'd seen the trailers and I'd seen all the stuff and I was really, really excited. So, you know, so I'm going for purely nostalgic reasons. I'm going for Live and Let Die, which is 20 to, 25 to 7, 20 to 5 to 7, 25 to 7 on Saturday on ITV4. Actually, I just noticed Joe Jackson, but not with an E, so not that one. Yes. Says, I'm going for three movies, Live and Let Die for a classic tune, About Time because it's got Bill Nye in it, and Toy Story because it's amazing. Well, those are all three. I mean, the, I have to say, I, I was actually inclining to another one until you said that thing about going to the cinema, and I suddenly remembered that thing, and I sort of thought, OK, well, and I don't think I've picked a Bond movie for a while, if indeed before. So Bad It's Bad, you got a, a, a rubbish one? Yeah, so So Bad It's Bad, this is our selection of the films that are on television this week that are so bad they're bad. We're going for Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End from 2007, 3.30pm on Sunday uh, uh, on 5. Uh, you know, the disaster artist talking about a movie so bad it's good, this is a movie that's so bad it's terrible. Oh, look out, there's Orlando doing some marketing. I got this an, e- uh, an email before you continue, Mark, from the Reverend Dr Paul McEwen in Aberdeen. 
It's no great secret your programme has a big following amongst the clergy. And when you think about it, that makes perfect sense. Given that we only work one day a week, what else are we going to do with our time but watch movies and listen, listen to podcasts? Yeah. Last year, I was pleased to discover that one of my local ministerial colleagues, the Reverend Dr John Cook, is also a Wittitainee. Interestingly, we discovered this fact through the old school medium of conversation. Imagine that, <laughs> and not the eyewitter app. That's not going to work. You both profit enormously. I sat beside John at a meeting last night, and he mentioned that he hadn't yet seen Blade Runner. But what, the, the Blade Runner rather than Blade Runner 2049? I imagine him he's 2049, but let's find out. Okay. But might be going to see Paddington 2 over the festivities. Right. I haven't managed that one yet, I said, but I hear it's very good. At least it's good according to the Gospel of Mark. Now, the Reverend Doctor looked rather puzzled at this anachronistic reference to the good book until after a few awkward seconds I gave in and said, Mark, Mark. you know, Mark Kermode. The lights of understanding went on at that point, but sadly John was too late to redeem himself. Having missed such an obvious wittertainment reference, can I suggest you tell him to stand with his nose to the wall in clergy corner until he's got his priorities right? Or does that sound a little too Blair Witchy for such a minor? Sounds quite Blair Witchy, yes. Anyway, that's the Reverend Doctor Paul McEwen, who's clearly hardcore. Okay. Uh, thank you, Reverend Doctor. So, uh, but you're not a... hardcore unless you live hardcore, and the legend of the band is way hardcore. That's very good. School of Rock. Well done. Anyway, worth, worth watching every single week. It is. Uh, it's sixteen to four. What else is new? Brigsby Bear. Um, the first thing to say about Brigsby Bear is I when you when you see even the poster or the name or the anything of Brigsby Bear, you think that's got to be a Sundance festival favourite hasn't it and you look it up yeah of course it, it is a Sundance f- why, festival why do you think and why do you think because it is a film that is for, for all that may be good or bad about it it is a film that has virtually been machine tooled to be a Sundance film festival favourite and, what, and what, what would that involve it's quirky it's offbeat it's indie it's sometimes cute it's sometimes cutesy it's got one of those names that makes you go hmm do you remember there was that song called Things That Make You Go Yes, yeah, CBC yeah. Music Factory. It is, yeah. So basically, oh, I didn't know that was who it was. Okay, so basically, Brigsby Bear is a film that if you had if you had got a bunch of scientists together in a laboratory and said, "I would like you to concoct for me a Sundance uh, Festival favorite," this is what they would have come up with. So, co-writer and star Carl Mooney is a young man who has been raised in artificial uh, isolation. He has he's had this completely isolated existence. He lives in a bunker with. Um, the people he refers to as mum and dad, and uh, you can't go outside because the air is toxic and the air is poisonous. And all he knows really about the world is through uh, a series called Brigsby Bear, which is about the intergalactic adventures of a strange uh, cartoon character. A strange, not cartoon, um, uh, real life, but somebody wearing... Not, not a real bear, somebody dressed as a bear having... A, a crunky television show, which he watches on old-style VHS tapes. And he goes uh, on his computer and he goes on discussion groups about what Brigsby Bear is about. His father occasionally allows him to go up onto the roof, meaning up onto ground level, in which they are in a kind of silent running type uh, eco-dome and look out at the world in which there's all this pollution and all this toxicity so they can't get out of it. And his father, conveniently, is played by Mark Hamill. So what's on your mind, pal? It's just... There are other people out there, just like us, right? And we're all watching Brigsby together. It means something. Look at the grazer bugs, James. All they need in this world is fresh water and cold moonlight to charge their rectoskeletons. They're out there every night, 
surviving just like us. The difference is we have dreams and imaginations to help us escape. But no one can take that away from you. Ever. The best way of describing this film is probably with reference to other films. So it's essentially Dogtooth, the Yorgos Lanthimos film Dogtooth, meets Galaxy Quest via Son of Rambo in Room, presented by Bungle from that once popular kids' TV programme, Rainbow. Right. In the case of Room, there was always this problem about how much you could talk about what what would happen inside the room and what might happen outside the room. In the case of Brigsby Bear, it's not a problem because it's very, very early on. He is brought out of the isolation. He discovers that he's actually been brought up in a completely artificial bubble under circumstances which he didn't understand. And he now struggles to make sense of the world around him. And in fact, the only way he can make sense of the world around him is by referring back to his tapes of Brigsby. And when he realises that there is no more Brigsby coming because he is now in the real world and actually all this pollution he was told about isn't true and Brigsby is not in fact some world phenomenon but he is the only person who has ever seen Brigsby he realised that the only way of filling the hole in his life is to take on the mantle of making a Brigsby movie to complete the story which he needs to be completed. Now, when I said that thing about, you know, Sundance, quirky slash irksome, that's exactly what I meant. It's a really odd little film. There are things in it that are sort of quite touching and insightful. There are things in it that don't work at all. There are times that it stretches the boundaries of its conceit beyond breaking point, but when it's when it's working and when what it's doing is looking at this kind of slightly Forrest Gump-like character, an innocent out in the world that they don't understand, not quite getting a handle on the language and thinking that the world actually has been defined by this strange talking bear series which he's been watching on VHS and then and then weirdly breathing real life into that thing it kind of works up to a point up to a point it's got some interesting ideas as I said very I mean if you know Yorgos Lanthimos's Dogtooth in which a father basically keeps his children within their house and within the garden because he doesn't want them to go out into the real world which is very much a political allegory and he tells them that aeroplanes aren't big aeroplanes very high up they're very small aeroplanes very close down and you can't go out into the garden because the cat is a lethal creature and he sort of creates this whole artificial environment by which to entrap them within his home because he doesn't want them to go out into the into the world that's uh that's a sort of a touchstone all the stuff of jacob Tremblay in Tremblay Tremblay in room only knowing the you know the world as the room room went every way to each corner in fact he's talking about a, a very small space Galaxy Quest that idea about a television series that's creaky and cronky that comes to mean something more than it ever could have meant and suddenly the people that were involved in making it seem to take on a strange uh, significance uh, and Son of Rambo, or even Be Kind Rewind, that idea of, well, you know, let's make it ourselves, let's do it in a kind of homegrown DIY fashion. It's odd, it shambles from one uh, piece to the next, it it has a certain momentum to it. it, it did lose me a couple of times, but it has a kind of odd, quirky, offbeat charm that has moments in it, individual moments that kind of justify the shambling whole. Uh, Cody McCracken, who's a short-term listener in Portland, Oregon. All right, Cody. Brigsby Bear is my favourite movie of the year. I saw it back in July. I've been waiting for the UK release to write in and lend one more voice to what is hopefully the popular opinion. Brigsby Bear is delightful. You've talked on the show recently about how some movies serve as bastions of decency 
and I think Brigsby Bear belongs in that category. Okay. The movie never takes the easy option of mocking its awkward lead character, but rather, even when laughing at his idiosyncrasies, invites us to admire his kindness and bravery. The jokes pass the 6 out of 10 laugh test by a mile. The plot is original, and Kyle Mooney carries the movie with a thoughtful performance, choosing humanity over parody at every turn. One of your listeners likened watching Paddington to receiving a hug. I think the same can be said for Brigsby Bear, though it's a special kind of hug, as awkward as it is sweet. Uh, that's, that's a lovely phrase, actually. That's, that's, that's very good. Uh, Laura Lawson, uh, after a viewing, uh, a viewing of the second Bear-based story to warm my heart this year, here's my thoughts. I saw Brigsby Bear as an advanced mystery screening in a well-known cinema chain. The cinema was almost full, as well as almost co-compliant. And as the film began, I was acutely aware of the fact no one in the screening had actually chosen to watch this film. I'd heard stories... Which is, which is always, I have to say, a, a very odd test. Yes. It is the way they test screenings, show them to people who wouldn't have gone to see them. It is an odd way of doing it. I had heard stories of people walking out en masse at a secret screening of the Florida Project, and I was really hoping it wouldn't be the case here. My fears were quickly averted. As Brigsby Bear played on, there was a real ambience of well-being in the cinema uh-huh. and the laughs were consistent, easily passing the new 10-laugh test within the first half hour. This is a heartfelt comedy that's not for cynics. You have to suspend your disbelief and just go with it. There might have been a Brigsby moral or two in there about being the best version of yourself, the power of imagination and achieving your dreams, but I just thought it was dope. And there's a note there... For- Hear from the editor because he thinks I'm old. Yes. Says that means good. Okay, good. Uh, If people don't like this film, it's the equivalent of dumping someone because they're too nice. (laughs) It's underlying dark subject matter. It's not really addressed, and there is no real jeopardy in the movie. No. Well, that's that for me is one of the is one of the problems. The 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 dark underlying thing isn't really addressed. It's not even a hard stare. Even the bad guys aren't that bad. But what's wrong with that? It's nearly Christmas after all. So uh, I mean that that was that is my problem is that is exactly that, is that the darkness isn't dark. Um, and, and and it left certain things, you know, that, that I felt uncomfortable about it not addressing um, the dark. But, but I, you know, that's lovely because that means that it, the film worked perfectly for, but that was two emails, yeah? Yeah, Laura and uh, and for Cody, would you say it was dope, this film? Uh <laughs> Sure, yeah, okay. whatever whatever that means. Mark yeah. says it's dope. Okay, okay. yeah. Okay, uh, seven minutes to four. What else? You Let's got? do Menashe, which is um, uh, the fiction feature debut from Joshua Weinstein, who in the past has made uh, documentaries and worked on uh, adverts. And it is a, I thought, a really, really engaging and moving you know that terrible word that people use, dramedy, you know, a comedy well, drama. You, you, you know, no, I don't because I think it's a horrible word, OK? So let's call it a drama, but let's call it a drama which has a sort of comedic side to it. And it is uh, about a, a central character called Minash who works in a grocery store and he lives uh, in the Borough Park district of Brooklyn, which has a very strong Hasidic community, Yiddish-speaking community, in which is fairly sort of insular, but the film takes us right inside that world. And uh, we meet him at the beginning. He is uh, widowed and he has uh, a young son whom he loves very much, but the son cannot live with him until he finds another partner because due to the the, the traditional rules, the child must be brought up in a two-parent household. So the child is now living with his uncle, his much stricter and and oddly much more successful uncle. Manash himself is a a slightly shambling figure, a kind of slightly schlubby figure, always looks a little bit dishevelled, has a a, a broad smile and a sort of an open countenance and a good heart, but is also oddly 
anarchic. I mean, very devout, but unorthodox in as much as won't exactly do what he's told. People are saying, no, you have to do this. You have to find a partner. He says, I, I don't want to. It won't be the same. It's not meant to be the same, but you have to do this. And what the film is then about is about him realising that in order to get his son back, he has to demonstrate to the community that he's a mensch. It's what they say, to prove that you're a mensch. And he has to prove that he is an upstanding citizen. And one of the ways that he may be able to do this is that there is a memorial dinner for his wife approaching. And he says, I want it to be in my house, whereas uh, uh, the kid's uncle says, no, it should be in ours. He says, no, I want it to be in my house because he thinks that this will demonstrate his value to the community. So essentially it is a story about a father and his son and separation and bereavement within a community which is uh, sort of intensely insular on the one hand, but is also thriving and vibrant and is not seen from an outsider's eyes as it has been in other movies which have dealt with a sort of similar milieu. Uh, The film takes as its inspiration the real-life experiences of uh, of the main guy, Menashe Lustig, and much of the script is actually based on things that had actually happened to him or inspired by events that had happened in his life. And the casting is really important because what they've done is they've cast... I know people use the phrase non-professionals, but it's first time as people who you know who are playing fairly close to home. So in order to make the film work, in order to make the milieu work, um, they've worked within the community and they've kind of cast close to home. And I thought it was I thought it was really, really lovely and really charming and engaging. And it gave you the sense of being taken into um, a community that, you know, from the outside may seem impenetrable. And firstly, letting us letting you see how vibrant and thriving and, and funny and active it is, but also giving you the sense of Menashe's outsider quality and to you start to root for him i mean he is shambolic and he is kind of quite difficult but he's got if i said he's got a very big heart and although the milieu is very specific it's a very very specific environment that is beautifully observed with real attention to detail and real care and you know a real desire to, to get this world right to not do some cinematic version of it but to but to put it on screen in an authentic and genuine way but it's also a completely universal story about a parent and a child, about a father and a son, about separation and about what one has to do in order to rebuild uh, one's uh, family bonds. And there are a couple of absolutely brilliant performances. Uh, Ruben Naborski, who plays the, the, the young kid, is terrific. And one of the things that's really terrific about him is that he loves his father, but he's also uncertain as to whether or not his father actually can give him the stability that he needs for his his life you know to to be fulfilled so you see in the young son all the doubt all the conflicts all the anxiety that the drama is about and you know there are plenty of scenes in which very little happens they walk the streets at sunset they care for a young hatchling chick we see uh, the young boy learning to juggle because this is one of the things that he's doing in his life. He's juggling these different lives and different worlds and different homes and these different sort of conflicting feelings. And it's it's a film in which it tells you so much through the the way in which characters physically behave. There's a lot of dialogue, but there's an awful lot of silence as well. It's a lot to do with watching people with long lenses from a distance. It has a kind of documentary feel. I mean, one of the 
one of the the director's touch touchstones. He was mentioning the the, the, the like French Connection, like that kind of film, in which you you feel like you're on the streets because you're looking from across the road. So therefore, the camera is unobtrusive. And there are moments in it that are really funny, moments in it that are really sort of, you know, proper, full-blooded comedy. But generally, it's wry and melancholic. And there's one scene that really stuck with me of uh, Menashe and Reven together as the sun is setting. And there's this kind of 70s dapple on the in, in the light and this beautiful score, which is lovely and understated and only comes in at certain moments and sort of under underlines this kind of quiet transcendence behind everything that's happening. And it's beautiful and it's also very sad and it's melancholic and yet it's charming and it puts a smile on your face at the same time as putting a tear in your eye. And it manages to do all those things in a way that feels genuine and feels real and feels like a documentary. As I said, it does have its have its feet firmly in a, in a reality. And I, th- I thought it was really, really remarkable. And it's called Menashe. And uh, and I, 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 I you know, it, it's you, you may have to seek it out. It's not going to be playing multiplexes everywhere, but it's it's you'll you'd love it. Well, I spent most of the program thinking, I wonder what is our movie of the week going to be? Uh, because I can always guess from the way you uh, structure your words. My guess is we've just heard it, but let me just check that out. So, Mark, what is our movie of the week? Is Menashe, obviously. Just checking. Just checking. Uh, this has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Next week, Mark, it's Star Wars, because we're talking Star Wars. Is there a Star Wars movie out? Next I hadn't noticed. Out. The director, Ryan Johnson, will be on the show next week. Is it raining? Well, it was very good, Mark. Thank you, Simon. Well, well done for, for being really good. Thank you. Um, before we go any further, yeah. uh, Steve, a guy called Steve, just wrote, wrote us a letter. It's actually like, it's like a proper letter. So oh, well, thank okay. you, Steve, for the letter. And he'd like you to say it'll, uh, it's going to be all right in the end. It's going to be all right in the end. Um, Laura in Norfolk, very much enjoying the conversation about crying, about film scenes, by just thinking about them. For me, it's Stand By Me, uh, the first and the last scenes especially. I can't even listen to the song without bursting into tears. I'm sobbing now just thinking about it. Thank you for your excellent show that's keeping me going through final difficult stages of my PhD. It's due on the 31st of December. Well, it's not as if it's anything, anything else to Well, you. you know, hey, congratulations for getting to those final difficult stages. It's, it's, that is a real achievement. Yeah, so like 5am, December 25th, that's what she's going to be doing. Adam Tolhurst in Stafford, the one scene in a film that always makes me cry is when John Merrick decides enough is enough in The Elephant Man, even thinking about it now, is making me quiver. Yeah. Now, we've got an invitation here. Yes. uh, From Fiona Fowler. Last weekend, Team Screen Machine was collectively consoling itself, having not been named Cinema of the Year, 24 screens or fewer. Uh, Congratulations to Zeffirelli's in Cumbria, who won that award, Okay, at a glitzy award ceremony down in London. But listening to your podcast, in particular the few minutes of chat which was prompted by our Sanday-based customer, Joanna Kenny, put a spring in our step, which has lasted all week. And what a week. Three days at the Cromarty Film Festival, sold-out screenings in Fort William, and today a battle through Storm Caroline to reach Millport on the, island, on the Isle of Cumbria, where our screenings for 2017 will draw to a close this weekend, enabling our two drivers, Ian and Neil, to concentrate on getting our cinemas through its MOT before they take a well-earned break. In the past year, we have visited 51 different communities in the Highlands and Islands of Scotland, including, of course, our mini-cruise to the Outer Islands of Orkney. We've just begun our 20th year of operation, and as part of the celebrations, we thought you might like to broadcast a show from the screen machine during a visit to one of those 51 communities. Perhaps Aaron, where one of our customers has been known to bring her parrot. 
or any of the other 50 where our fabulous customers gather to watch movies in their own communities in fine surroundings when screen machines roll into town. We're all great fans of the show. Keep up the good work in 2018 uh, and beyond. Excellent. So thank you, to, thank you, Fiona. Very we good. Very happy to, to support you there. Um, now, this is a... Yes, I'm slightly troubled here. OK. So bear with me. All right. My name is Stuart, says Stuart. I'm a colonial commoner. <laughs> My name is Stuart, says Stuart. And winner of the Hot Young Thing Award, Wellington Frim- Fringe Festival in 1998, Stuart Coates. He's writing from New Zealand. Okay, uh, I'm writing about the use of birdsong in right. the show, so I think actually we could do with some birdsong uh, at this point. As you will know, it is currently summer in New Zealand. I live very close to a wonderful native bird sanctuary here in Wellington. The success of this sanctuary has been the native bird population. We've seen the native population grow, and outside of my house most days, I can see and hear birds frolicking in the trees. I like listening to your witterings as I have my breakfast. It has been gloriously warm here in the last few weeks, so I've had the windows wide open as possible. My problem comes when there is silence during your show. For example, last week you were talking about the Nicholas Witchell game, the Nick Witchell game, and Simon was unsure whether he could describe it because it involved a little bit of swearing. At the end, he asked to the world, but probably to Robin, can I say that? I can't say that, can I? And then there was silence in the studio, like this. But you see, the thing is, my house was filled with birdsong. And I couldn't tell if this was the restless natives or the restless robin filling the air with his chirping. Similarly, at the end of the podcast, Mark said, I'm going to bring my harmonica. And then there was more chirping. Was this real avian song or Simon's response to Mark's harmonica playing being edited to save our delicate ears? I like to think it was the latter. I didn't know that there was birdsong over your harmonica. I didn't know that either. But a good gag... I think. But I, I, do you know? Good if cruel. <clears throat> I think this is really. I mean, uh, because this is very I, restive, isn't it? It is. And uh, that's, <laughs> is that a crow? Would that be a crow? Looking at the townies here. You know, what was that? You know, I did. It sounds like it was a, a car, crow. wasn't it? Anyway, I think this is rather nice. I wouldn't mind downloading half an hour of this. I'm sure that there is an app on which you can do this, and actually, you know, rather than actually having to have real birds. You know, anyway, you just have an app do it for you. These almost certainly aren't kiwi birds, but anyway, Stuart, thank you very much indeed uh, uh, for the email. And we seem to have got to the end of the show, and you hadn't reviewed everything. There's a couple just... of things I just, just would like to say a just, few a I... few words about, if that's all right with you. Well, just briefly then. Okay, so um, so very quickly, uh, <clears throat> Human Flow, which is um, a documentary by uh, Ai Weiwei, the artist, and it's it's a documentary about migration um and about the way in which migration happens around the world and the the extraordinary and terrible circumstances which people now find themselves in mass migration from syria iraq also some the rohingya people palestinians um and essentially what the documentary does is it, i mean there've been movies recently like that film fire at sea and alejandro gonzalez in yaratu did um did a, a, a VR experience at Cannes, which I didn't see because it wasn't at Cannes, based on people coming across the border from Mexico uh, into America. And what this does is it's, it doesn't attempt to sort of contextualise through words or you know political explanation or that sort of thing. It is very much a visual documentary. There is you know there are words in it, 
But you get uh, ranging from sort of handheld uh, photography to these very impressive um, drone shots over huge, huge numbers of people travelling across incredibly difficult terrain, having left behind everything that was part of their life before and risking, you know, risking life and limb in order to travel from one place which is incredibly dangerous to another place which is comparatively less dangerous. And what the documentary does is it has this kind of cumulative effect. The use of the word flow in the title is interesting because flow sounds like something that, you know, that glaciers or or, or sea does. And there's an implication in this that this is something which happens and which happens all the time and is, you know, is, is, is part and parcel of the world. But what the documentary does is it shows you this huge amount of movement and the barriers that are put up to it and the hardship and the difficulty and the way in which that has dehumanised these people um, who are, I mean, not dehumanised them, dehumanising the eyes of the, uh, uh, the onlookers who really need to see exactly what it is that's happening. And the, the, po- the moments at which the documentary is less successful is when Ai Weiwei himself like, meets some of the refugees and he engages in conversation with them, which you know, attempts to talk to them about, you know, how, you know, we, we're all part of oneness and we could swap lives and that sort of thing. That doesn't work so well. But what does work is this really extraordinary kind of visual account of the enormous human suffering involved in people being forced to move around a world which is hostile to them and in which borders are constantly placed in their way and in which their lives are consequently devalued. And the film, without making a polemical argument, makes a kind of, just an argument of, of exhibition. It's like saying, look, look. Look what's happening. Look at the scale of this. Look at the just the immenseness of it. And then look at what the responses of the world to it may be at the moment. As I said, borders, boundaries, gates. And I, I found it it's 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 very moving. I mean, it is it is, you know, it, it is an an oddly sort of overwhelming cumulative experience that doesn't feel the need to specifically explain um, each one of its different circumstances, but feels like, as I said, it, 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 it can put this situation in front of you and it sort of trusts its audience to be overawed and to be saddened and to be overwhelmed and to be moved by it. And I, it, it did do all those things. I did find it overwhelming and I, I did find it moving as well. I'd also like to say that there is a 4K reissue uh, in the UK of A Matter of Life and Death, the Paralyn Pressburger from 1946, which is one of the greatest films ever made. Um, it is just a wonderful story. It was originally commissioned by the Ministry of Information in the immediate aftermath of the war, in which what they wanted to do was to foster better relations between the Brits and the Yanks because they felt that the Brits felt that the Yanks were overprivileged, you know, that famous, you know, overpaid, oversex and over here, and they felt that the Yanks didn't really understand the Brits, with whom, you know, obviously there are kind of historical problems. And so Powell and Pressburg were told, can't you, can't you come up with something that would, you know, that would somehow bridge this gap? And what they actually came up with was a film which brilliantly bridges the gap between this world and the next. The story is David Niven is an aviator. He's coming back across the channel. His plane has been hit. He doesn't have a parachute. 
And in the last moments of what is designed to be his life, and his time is up, his moment has arrived, he falls in love with a radio operator whom he has never met, but to whom he's only spoken. I was lucky to get you, June. Can't be helped about the parachute. I have my wings soon anyway, big white ones. I hope they haven't gone all modern. I'd hate to have a prop instead of wings. What do you think the next world's like? I got my own ideas. Peter. I think it starts where this one leaves off, or where this one could leave off if we'd listen to Plato and Aristotle and Jesus. With all our little earthly problems solved, but with greater ones worth the solving. I'll know soon enough anyway. I'm signing off now, June. Goodbye. Goodbye, June. Hello, G for George. Hello, G George. Hello, G George. Hello. <laughs> so long, Bob. I'll see you in a minute. You know what we wear by now. Proper wings. And he jumps from the plane and miraculously survives because the afterworld emissary that's been sent to get him because his time is up got lost in the fog. He then, having fallen in love, has to fight his case as to whether or not he has the right to live. And everything that then happens between this world and the next, you can see is happening within his head because he's had a, you know, he's, he's been through a traumatic experience and maybe it's to do with that. Or maybe he is genuinely fighting his case to stay alive in the afterworld. It's never referred to as heaven. There's a genius bit of inversion, which is that unlike the Wizard of Oz, in which the, the ordinary world, Kansas, is in black and white, and when you get to Oz, it's in colour. In this, Technicolor is down here on the ground, and it's in the other world that everything's in black and white. It's got the most brilliant screenplay. It is played fantastically by all the key players. There is some Jack Hardy's visuals are just absolutely breathtaking. It will touch your heart and your soul and make you a better person for having seen it. And it's in the cinemas now in a 4K restoration. And it is just a timeless gem. What's it called? A Matter of Life and Death. Although in America, it was called Stairway to Heaven because the Americans thought that after the war, nobody would want to watch a movie that had the word death in the title. Well, you can understand their point. Well, Michael Powell, the director, said, "I, you know, that just seemed to me to be to be nonsense. I thought that us Brits were made of sterner stuff, and and over here, a matter of life and death was the title, and that's that's the original title." It's of the ironic film, that, in... that a film that was designed to bridge the difference between <laughs> no, no, immediately <laughs> to kind of difference because no, we don't want that. Title. We don't have it called that. No. Anyway, uh, all of which means I think we might have a musical conclusion to the show, but it's time for DVD of the week. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, hey Mark. Hey Simon. Hey Mark. Hey Simon. Hey, hey Mark. Hey, hey Simon. Hey Mark. What? Why does Karl Marx hate Earl Grey tea? Because all property is theft. There are not one but two films named after proper tea in this week's DVDs of the week. The Apartment and House, so you could... The Apartment and House. The Apartment so you could, and House. With the help of Kirsty and or Phil, pick one of those for your oldie of the week, or maybe Carrie or the Eric Roma collection, or even some Agnes Varda or Andre Tarkovsky. Newbie choices include an inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power, Love, Cecil, and 7852 Hitchcock movie. So, what are your choices and what are your predictions going to be for Mark? John Hartnub says it's... Why does Karl Marx drink herbal tea? Because that avoids the discussion over whether or not Earl Grey... is proper tea. James Richard Walls. Carrie, it was my first taste of Kingsian cinema and I loved it. Tension, solid character development, a suitable amount of blood and a goofy Travolta. What's not to love? Robin Roberts, The Apartment. This was a little-known gem of a movie. 
but over the past several years it has become a widely appreciated classic. A bittersweet comedy with very dark undertones. Adultery, suicide, womanising, but at the centre it has a heart of gold and a game of gin rummy. And Tim Gowan, The Apartment, is a wonderful film and everyone needs more Billy Wilder in their life. But what is our DVD of the week, Mark Kermode? Well, our, our th- throwback retro DVD of the week is indeed The Apartment because it's The Apartment and there's nothing wrong with it. It has the best line, Evs, in, uh, as a last line of a movie. And it is dealing with those sort of, you know, dark, burbling undercurrents. But it's also wonderfully romantic and funny and charming. And so that would be our oldie of the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, of, the, of the new releases, I think I would end up going for 7852 because... Although I think that it's very hard to find anything new to say about the, sh- the, the psycho shouting, the psycho sour... Yes, that. That, that one. Um, 78.52 is one of those kind of primers that does... It does tell you that if you pick apart a piece, there is a, there is a reason that the psycho shower scene has continued to live for as long as it has. I think there there's occasionally a little too much of three guys sitting on a sofa going, you know, this is what I think about that. But there is some really interesting stuff, particularly from the body double, which I hadn't heard before. And uh, I had the great privilege of knowing Saul Bass, who storyboarded all that stuff. And so I think it is a, it, it is the wellspring in many ways. Good. So that is our. There are DVDs. Yes. Worth just, so just before we go, then, there's just a little hint of um, this song which I mentioned earlier by Smith and Burroughs, yes. which I played uh, a lot, and we'll get an outing uh, at selective and rather wonderful radio stations. Okay. Um, this is when the Thames froze by Smith and Burroughs. Right. It's, it's very kind of very kind of it's very tired and exhausted and tired London and so on. And then when the chorus comes in, this is where I will up. Okay. I might not too. Right. When I dream. It's got a great voice, I love it. Anyway. I'll dream so according to Edith, if you cry, it's because of the magic stuff. When the Thames, when the Thames froze. Right, so we've got all the dreary stuff, political stuff. When I say dreary, I don't mean I don't like it. I mean, this is this context, you know. How are you feeling so far, Mark? Yeah, I like it. Have you not heard this before? No. Okay. I feel as though it might be approaching the chorus sometime soon. Feel like a chorus to you now? I think so. When the Thames froze. That's a pretty hopeful sound, isn't it? Eh? Do you like that? I do. Do you like that? A little bit of magic, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's what it is. So that's all Edith had to offer, really. So we'll play out with this. A little bit of magic. Just a little bit. Thank you for listening. We'll do it again next week.